Hey, Pete. Hey, Aaron. Get ready to start Trek, the next generation. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. generation baby it's star trek star trek babies right we're, we're star trek babies star trek babies uh that'll be the the first time we get something pulled down for copyright like oh you can steal songs and put them on it but don't sing them <laughs> this is owned by disney uh yeah so uh really quickly we have moved on to the next phase of this podcast um this and what podcast is it? Well, it is Star Trek, the spinoff podcast that we love to watch, which is a movie podcast hosted by Aaron Armstrong and Pete Moran. And uh, this came about because Aaron Armstrong, me, Pete Moran, the other voice, uh, were talking about Star Trek one day, and I was like, uh, "I God, Star Trek's so good! I need to go back through those original movies. Um, that feels like a good series to plow through." And Pete was like, "Never seen any of it. Period. Don't know anything. Never touched the uh, stuff. Never touched the stuff. Had a massive head injury. Unrelated." <laughs> But also haven't seen Star Trek. Uh, so I believe the two that you had seen was the 2009 reboot. You had seen Into Darkness. And literally maybe never an episode of the show. If you want to kind of hear us talk about, uh, kind of pull back what Peter knew at the start of this. Uh, go back to our first episode. Uh, set phasers to fundamentals. But we just finished seven episodes. It only took us possibly two years. Um and or a year uh, of going through an intro to Star Trek, the original series, and then going through all six movies uh, paired with uh, episode or episodes to uh, get him into the series as well. Show some so show some classic episodes or in some cases, uh, things that are helpful to know before you see the movies like introducing Khan from Space Seed before the Wrath of Khan, or Sarek in Journey to Babel before he shows up in the search for Spock. But now we're moving on. We're going to move on to the next generation films. And one thing I realized very quickly was that uh, – I didn't realize it. I knew it as a, as a <laughs> lifelong Star Trek fan. <laughs> uh, I, now I can do the nerd voice making fun of myself in junior high, Peter. And I think that's going to be good for everyone. But um, – it's the the Star Trek movies, especially the first two, take a lot from the continuity of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and they they were just very different shows, very different movies. Star Trek: The Original Series, there's no intro to the group as a whole. 
there is just all of a sudden you're just meeting them on a mission. They all know each other well. Relationships are established. And then they have various missions over a three-year show. The movies have a lot more kind of connection to each other, especially two through four. But overall serve a, a general theme. But I think even the movies you could in most cases pop into in any order. And you'd find a lot to like. Uh, I think... Next Generation is different in that while the shows were still mostly episode of the week, uh, there is a lot of continuity that pops up. Now, it's a different kind of continuity than you would find in like a typical television format where maybe like uh, I'll use Star Trek Discovery. There's a there's a kind of an overreaching plot each season. About half the episodes are are um, are their kind of own isolated monster mystery of the week type show. Um, and then there's also these broader, broader uh, plot uh, episodes that come up. Star Trek The Next Generation was not that frequent. So we're going to kind of be talking a little bit about the the uh, Klingon Civil War arc, which was five, six episodes total over, over, over five years. Uh, when people talk about uh, Q, which is a, a person that showed up in the first episode, um, we're a beloved recurring guest star, you're talking about seven appearances over 179 episodes. So really these kind of like continuity or arcs that happen are still pretty rare. The relationships tend to, t- uh, while, while the, the plot and the story beats don't really show from from episode to episode, the, the more continuity is based on the relationships between these characters throughout the years. But having said that, the movies themselves really pull a lot from uh, a couple arcs from Star Trek, which makes sense. It was something that worked well in the Wrath of Khan, and there were some story uh, and and some story uh, components to pull up from those. So, what we decided to do for Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, this is kind of a slowing it down episode. Before we get into generations, we're going to introduce Peter to the Next Generation by showing him kind of what we did last time: three examples of highly regarded Next Generation episodes. Uh, those are. Measure of a Man, Yesterday's Enterprise in Darmok. We're also going to show the pilot, Encounter at Farpoint, because uh, this is a show where they did not start the the series with them having pre-established relationships. They meet, they set up some things. Uh, It felt like it was important to show Peter kind of where it started, uh, even though... First day of school. And then we're also hitting one of the two arcs that has some components pulled in for Star Trek Generations. So uh, the Klingon Civil War arc, which in this case means that Peter and I both watched The Emissary, Sins of the Father, uh, Reunion, The Mind's Eye, and Redemption Part 1 and Part 2. Next time, we'll do um, we'll do Star Trek Generations with the other com- uh, little arc that is helpful to know before you go into that movie, which will be the episodes Data Lore and Brothers, uh, and then the movie. So... That's a lot of table setting for where we're at right now uh, and what we're going to cover today. Uh, I want to slow it down even more, though. Peter, you've watched now. Let's let's take aside Star Trek The Next Generation for now. You did just watch nine episodes of that. Uh, but you probably have seen about ten episodes of the original series at this point. You've seen all six movies. Coming into switching to a new crew, how are you feeling about the whole uh, experiment show that we're doing? Uh, I'm feeling very positive in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. Uh, at the end of the last episode, I was lamenting that, <clears throat> like, I, I didn't want to lose, uh, you know, 
my, my boy, McCoy. Um, I was just starting to warm up to Shatner again, actually. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I hated him when the motion picture kicked off because he became a different kind of, a different kind of uh, Kirk. He became more of this, like, clownish, campy, campy presence uh, in the movies. He just, his level of performance got much worse from, from between the shows and the movie. Um but uh, so I, I was starting to turn around on that. I was actually starting to get Spock, who's a character I've never quite understood the like love for. Um, I was starting to get there. And then all of a sudden it was time to say goodbye, even though every single movie was about saying goodbye in some regard. And <laughs> get, getting introduced to this new cast, I was immediately charmed by all of them. And I was kind of apprehensive at first because I knew I was going to love Patrick Stewart just because I love him as, an, as a character actor. It, 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 he's just a charming presence in whatever the hell he's in. But I was weary of the rest of the crew. I thought Data's shtick was going to get old really quick. I thought Worf's shtick was going to get old really quick. I was not looking forward to Will Wheaton. So, like, I was kind of carrying in, like, preconceived notions uh, on what Star Trek is, despite the fact that I had preconceived notions about what Star Trek is uh, smashed uh, with the original series. Um, I still didn't give this quite the benefit of the doubt. uh, And I I had my expectations uh, smashed again this time in a good way. Um, This is... uh, this, the way that it updates the, the, the dialogue to be more natural, uh, the characters to be a little bit more present and in the room, it's less stagey feeling. Um, the fact that it's essentially just a cast of amazing character actors just bashing heads. And character actors that I know, because a lot of them are from 80s and 90s horror movies that I love. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I recognize... Patrick them. Stewart, especially. Yeah, like... In Life Force, Life the Force. best movie of all time. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, stacking the cast with character actors that I actually uh, mostly recognize uh, and having these awesome guest spots from guys like Tony Todd is another way to really charm me. And the fact yeah. that like, and, and, then, and then there's also a subconscious element that I can't quite uh, give the show credit for, but it still is going to get credit for nonetheless, um, which is that I, the show premiered essentially when I was uh, not born. And then its run continued through my infancy and then stopped. Um, so it came out in 87? 87 through 94, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I remember catching bits and pieces of the show on Sci-Fi Channel or whatever in reruns. The, the like, sort of warmth of the ship and the colors and the characters and all that, like, is triggering, like, serious nostalgia pangs, like, nostalgia echoes in yeah. me in a way that I was not expecting, because I was like, I didn't watch the show as a kid, and realizing <laughs> now, I probably did, it's just I didn't know what I was watching. <laughs> it was on in the background, like... My dad was watching uh, it, and he, and, I, and I would yeah. probably, you know, wander in, get very confused, you try and explain it, or not even bother explaining it, and then... You know, why does everyone want to fuck the bearded one? Well, <laughs> um, oh, that's the other thing that uh, I like is that it feels more um, the the way that they discuss things like sex and war and violence. The language they use is much more present. Uh, it's yes, less, it's less hidden in 1960s innuendo. So it's like it feels very, very, very modern in a way that like wow. is yes, guys, fuck obvious. Peter. <laughs> It's, Get it's, used to it. They don't have to hide it. They don't have to wink, wink. They don't have to pay it out. These guys fuck. They fuck. This ain't your grandpa's, uh, you know, Star Trek. This is your father's Star Trek, though. 
this is very specifically your father's Star Trek. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'll tell you what, before we kind of get, I want to get into a little bit of the history of the next generation, not too much. Um, but this really was difficult for me to pick out episodes because, so I will say, Peter, of all the, all the episodes that you've, uh, that you've watched, I wouldn't say any of them are any of my top 10 favorites. And I really struggled with that. And let's, and I kind of want to walk through why. Now, some of these are really great episodes that I love. Uh, none of them are bad episodes that I hate. And there's not that many of Star Trek The Next Generation, but there is there is definitely a few. Star Trek The Original Series, it's like, yeah, there's better episodes than other ones. But they just follow a very similar template because you always have, except for very extreme examples, you have Kirk, you have McCoy, and you have Spock. And... It's main character, secondary characters, tertiary characters. And Star Trek The Next Generation, from the get-go, tried very hard to make all of the characters have feel like it is a true ensemble. Uh, and I think that was even hard to show in these, because I do feel like a lot of these episodes, you're getting mostly Worf episodes, some Picard stuff. And so you're probably like, yeah, it's Worf and Picard and some data. <coughs> um, that's not really true when we, go, uh, if you were to go through all the episodes. It's just, hey, we just spent, you know, we did the Klingon arc. That's five episodes. Those are all Worfy. <laughs> like, we're doing, we did, um, you know, a couple of Picard and data stuff. Uh, but there's, there's, there's tons of Geordi episodes. There's Wesley Crusher episodes. There's Troy episodes that are kind of like the main plot is around them or taking two characters and how those two interact. So that's a struggle in and of itself. Like, how do I show you what the show's about? This kind of crew as opposed to Kirk plus others uh, in a way that makes sense. And then also... So, because the show is so much about the characters' relationships in a way that Kirk's uh, version of Star Trek isn't as much, although those relationships are very important, especially for the main ones, it's not about kind of this evolving thing and getting to know these characters. How can I go in and show you some of my favorites that are very much a how, how, that are a lot of them are very much about knowing these characters kind of inside and out. And kind of taking that apart. Or or these great episodes with these other like guest star side character type people that don't make any sense if you haven't gone the introduction route. And then I also knew we were bumping up against Generations and First Contact, both that are pulling very heavily from what some things that you should know about the show or some, some plots that you should know about the show. Um, so I really was like... Okay, how do I compress, like, here's some good examples of, like, Darmok, Yesterday's Enterprise, and Measure of a Man are three episodes that you are going to find on. And I actually did some testing. I went and looked up ten different top 25 Star Trek The Next Generation lists from various publications. I think nine times out of ten, you would find all three of these on there. So I think, or at least you'd find two out of three at a minimum. So they're always in that conversation even if they've never necessarily been my personal favorites, although yesterday's Enterprise would come the closest. And then also, again, let you know what's coming in generations so you feel like there's a the, the, the ground has been laid. And then also not overload you because I feel like you need to see, with some cool stuff I'm going to show you later, you need to see Farpoint. So it's like, 
yeah, I, I made you watch nine episodes just for an intro episode. You're still going to watch two more before the movie. And I was really like, how do I do this in a way that gives you kind of um, a taste of the show, helps you understand a couple plot points, uh, but also recognizing like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more good stuff to come here. And that really has been the delineation between – I've said this from the beginning – between Star Trek, the original series, and Star Trek The Next Generation. There is – 20 or so episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation that are probably in in contention for, like, episode televisions I've watched the most times, some of my favorite things I've ever seen in, like, the medium, like, that I just have these warm memories of, of uh, and every time I watch them, they hold up. And then the movies are, two of them are pretty good uh, as, like, action or, like, big screen endeavors, but don't really, I think capture the series at its best um and then two of them are kind of like what the fuck is this guys um that are like would be bad episodes of the television show as where the original series is there's some great episodes of television but the movies are really where for the most part as a whole they figured out the format uh really well so so yeah so first off before we get into the history and back up a little bit uh i made you watch nine episodes the episodes were very heavy in some specific things. Like I said, uh, you're getting a Klingon Civil War arc that was four episodes over five years. <laughs> and you watched them basically one right after the other. Um, so how are you feeling just in general after watching nine episodes of The Next Generation? Um, are you hungry for more? Um, were were there were you getting a little sick of it at the end? Like where where were you feeling overall before we get into episode by episode? Definitely positive. Um, and I think that the fact that I... you okay, So you say um, <clears throat> having to watch these episodes spread out over five seasons or whatever, um, that uh, I, you know, it, it might be frustrating or it might be confusing in some way. It actually, because the episodes, these these episodes that you, you pulled out are so character focused, it felt like I was almost watching like a movie of, you know, a Worf's journey throughout uh, and the quality of the show never dipped. It's not like there was like a season shot on video. Um, it all looks like it's shot on film. It's all nice looking, yep. like, uh, especially given the era. Um, so they flowed nicely together. They were able to maintain cast, which is really important. Nothing super, no super big shocks to the way it's produced. Like, this is not a show where, uh, you know, you can really tell this director took on this episode, right? Like, um, they, they all they all have the same sort of showrunner feel, which is good. It's consistent. But the I will say that the um, watching all that in a row actually, I think, in some ways increased my the dramatic effect of it because they do make very specific call-outs to character moments from the previous episodes. Yeah. And, and though the show is not as uh, similar to a preconce- preconception I had about the original series, the show is not buried in gobbledygook and lore. Um, it's But it's, no. it's very focused on like, hey, this plot point is not going to work unless you remember what happened between Worf and his brother uh, Kern. Um, yeah. Br- stepbrother or whatever. Um it's just not no. It's his work. real it's... brother. I thought they were stepbrothers. No, he uh, real brother. He was uh, hidden from Worf because of uh, what happened at. But yeah, no real brothers, biological I thought, brothers. I thought they didn't share uh, 
both parents. Uh, no, they share both parents. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Um, but yeah, there's little details that probably slip between the cracks from other episodes, maybe. I don't know. But watching just war focused kept me from being like, ever having those moments where I was like, I missed something. The only thing that I almost missed was Tasha Yar's death. Um, but you informed me of yeah. that. Um, yeah, I tried to let you like, hey, just let you know. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, she dies off screen or she doesn't die off screen. She dies in the first season. Her Denise Crosby was like, um, she felt like she didn't have anything to do on the show. She had just done like she had done was about to do. No, sorry. She um, was like, I could go do movies. I'm getting some offers. As we've talked about, the first movie she does after this is Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. After she leaves the show in the first and season. She's, she's good Off- in Pet Cemetery too. She's good in Pet Cemetery, but the offers don't roll in. And she kind of kind of regrets her decision a little bit. Um, and kind of asks for these ways to come back. So if you can imagine, you're a Star Trek viewer in 1989. Tasha Yar hasn't been on the show in two years. And all of a sudden there's a shift and there's Tasha Yar behind Kirk. Or sorry, behind Picard instead of, um, instead of Worf shocking moment and then shows up as a as a as her own daughter or as a as her daughter after that kind of plot thread flows into this other plot um but yeah like and that's why you do sometimes have these clunky things of dialogue because it's like well it's a syndicated show you just need to have watched the one episode that we're referencing and so there is like some moments where like uh, in redemption where Guinan's like okay yeah here's what happened (laughs) To anyone that's confused why why there's a Romulan Tasha Yar here. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's um it's less that I think the show poorly explained it. Um, it's clunky in the sense that it's really hard to explain why something that's super dramatic and powerful uh, is super yeah. dramatic and powerful out of context. Um, yeah. So, you know, the show does its best, but obviously, um, and I, you know, I was able to catch up, but... Obviously, I could tell by the musical strings and by Picard's really big reaction. He stands up out of his chair that um, that 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 was a big moment for the show, killing off Tasha Yar. And like it had ripples and the fact that she came back in. um, Yesterday's Enterprise. Enterprise, Yeah, yeah. uh, she came back in yesterday's Enterprise. Excuse me. Um, also had like a big dramatic effect. You could, you could tell on the characters that, you know, actually nobody remembers her. Um, well, no yeah. one knows that she's dead. Yeah. Yeah. That, they, she, that she never. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, just, let's just focus on, uh, just focusing on the redemption arc. Um, it, it has a huge, uh, and almost outsized effect on Picard who stands up out of his chair in a really dramatic fashion. And it's supposed to have that effect on the audience. But I was like, yeah, I, I, Aaron sent me a Wikipedia note that she died. <laughs> it didn't yeah. have like the the like punch, you know. Well, actually, what's really funny about that we can just mention that now. So the whole point is that she kind of had a shitty death. Like they beamed down to this planet. This guy named Armis, which is like this oil slick creature in the. I mean, it's the first season. So the first season, the second season are not that great um, in general. But yeah, it's just a guy who's the episode's called Skin of Evil. He's like, "Oh yeah, you don't think I'm evil? I'm gonna kill this person." <laughs> and they kill Tashi Har. Uh, they do have a funeral at the end of the episode for her, where everyone's really sad. And I imagine it was shocking. It's you know, the, part way. It's most of the way through the first season of Star Trek. Star Trek's not a show known for killing off its characters, let alone their security chief. That's had 
you know, uh, has been featured as much as any of the uh, the the rest of the cast. But uh, part of the reason was because Rick Berman was fucking pissed that uh, Denise Crosby was quitting. So she, he's like, "Oh yeah, uh, no good, no good death for you. Yep, you go to the planet, someone kills you." Whoop-dee-doo. And that's why, like, yesterday's Enterprise is actually a redemption a little bit for her as, like, an actor and a character, too. That, like, hey, let's actually give this person that's somewhat beloved or was to the cast more of, like, a less of a fuck you death. Uh, And actually, final side note on that, Rick Berman decided to post on Twitter about a year ago with the the, the badge, the, the Star Trek Insignia com. That was like, hey, you know, just thinking about old days. This was Tasha. This was Denise Crosby's. She gave it to me after she shot her final scene on Skin of Evil. Said, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. And then Denise Crosby responded to Rick Berman like, "Uh, seems like your memory's off. First of all, the last episode I shot was Symbiosis because we shot some stuff out of order. So that was my last day of shooting. Also, you came up to me, ripped it off my shirt, and said, I guess you're not going to be needing this anymore, quitter, and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Rick Berman's an asshole. Yeah. We'll get into some of that, yeah. I don't know that much about, like, any of the drama. I don't know any of the context on how the show was received or reviewed. I don't know if it was ever almost canceled. I don't know how expensive it was for the time. I'm assuming pretty expensive, given 90s budgets. A uh, billion dollars an episode. It's <laughs> never made its money back. Like, the fact that the show looks pretty good and it's shot on film implies to me that this was an expensive-ass show. Um, and the fact that, like, it... Like, and I, I've also seen, like, I remember how TV movie. <laughs> I have had the experience of going back and rewatching TV movies that scared me as a kid, particularly like the McGarris Stephen King miniseries. Uh, and those, they, they threw money at The Stand. They threw money at The Shining. <laughs> and they look terrible. They're ugly. A lot of that is artistic quality, but, like, also just the, yeah. <laughs> just an, an incredible cheapness. Um yeah, this, some of the this has some, some of the space and stuff like the the the, the, yeah. the space wrestling for some reason like you figure by the '90s that like they they could hire a fight choreographer for hand to hand stuff. <laughs> um, but the only stuff that ever really looks good is occasionally King on Klingon fights look okay. Um, yeah, but Worf I never they just didn't, fight. But um, yeah, they never like Picard fighting never looks good. Oh, uh, how dare you? Uh, but uh, yeah, this uh, it's not this his fault. He's a fucking Shakespeare actor. Like he's doing theater. Oh, he's they, doing, don't, they don't have war scenes in Shakespeare plays. He's here? doing like theater punches against like a CGI creature. <laughs> it's just, it's uh, not, yeah, it's not connecting. <laughs> Um, yeah, the special effects actually still hold up well from, like, the model work in the space. Like, you never are like, oh, that looks like a piece of shit. You're like, oh, why don't the ships move or fly? Or why do they stay still? Why do they fire one phaser when, like, things are coming? Like, the the, the space scenes are very stained in, like, their, like, their stillness because of the way that they did it. But, at, like, the ships don't look. You're not like, that's a piece of shit. As we're like, I like Babylon 5. But all of that was done with mid-90s CGI. So you got to be like, hey, really good show. Terrible first season. Gets better later. How do you feel about everything in space being sub-PS1 graphics? (laughs) (laughs) Is there not much in space? Like, do they just go there? No, it's a space station. Yeah, they're in space quite often. Uh, Everything looks like puke. How do you feel about that? (laughs) There was that weird... There was that weird quality of CGI of that era, which I don't think the show has, mind you. No. 
I mean, um, there wasn't CGI. They uh, used and, models. And stuff that came on after uh, that uh, CGI stuff of that era had that sort of beige pukey quality. Um, yeah. and, it, and this sort of strange, either way too smooth textures or like uh, fuzzy textures. And it was uh, a lot of fuzz. The, it just had a weird way of making everything look like I, I can't even make a good correlation. Because, no, like, I know nothing, it's it's tough. Like, unless you looks that hyper smooth, except for shitty CGI and Command and Conquer games. Yeah, it's like uh, you can either reference it through video games or did you watch Savior Renegade Angel? And those are basically yes. the two. <laughs> because the it's two so it's so unnatural. There's no reference point except for this era. Like no C- no CGI ever looked the way Scorpion King would look again. Like yeah. They figured uh, something yeah, this... out. All the characters, they also, I was, there was something that I was reading about a few years ago, and this is definitely an asterisk, but uh, was about the biggest the biggest revelations for a lot of CGI characters is adding subdermal layers of texturing. So, like, uh, your, your skin is not obviously just one solid object. It's a series of, you know, dermal layers. And, like, the more texture you, if you make skin look like a series of textures, uh, under overlapping one another, it looks more real than if you um, and how light and oil reflect off an arm. But if you don't do that, it just turns into this super smooth, uh, globby thing, and that's how you get a Scorpion King. Yeah, so much of that CGI was bad, and they it definitely helped to cut corners because these types of shows are expensive, and the only reason that we got one that like. Again, uh, it's pre-CGI, so it's all model work and in-camera effects. And the fact that it doesn't look like garbage is because uh, they had money because it was it was Star Trek. There was a lot of money behind this. So let's yeah, let's talk a little bit, Peter. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how the show came to be. I want to talk a little bit about my history with this show, in particular, and then uh, I say we get into some episodes. Yeah, let's 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 do let's do some overview because like. This is not a show that I know anything about except for what you've told me and what I've watched. So here's something might blow your mind. Did you know this is the second attempt at a another Star Trek series? Uh, I would believe it, um, considering the sort of uh, the way the fact that Gene Roddenberry is involved in this series in some yeah. regard. Gene Roddenberry was heavily involved in this series until his death. He wasn't like a showrunner. Or, um, or, but he was an executive producer. He had an office on the building. It wasn't like with the Star Trek movies where they're like, okay, Gene, we saw Star Trek, the motion picture. You're out. You're special consultant. He had a lot of power. Um, and, and when he was most active in season one and two is one of the reasons people think, um, that the, those seasons weren't as good. And they kind of talk about that a little bit on a lot of the extra textual stuff where he just like really didn't want conflict between any of the characters or, uh, feder- the Federation or anything like that. He just wanted um, any conflict to come from exterior, and you know that's not how you make a dramatic show. So um, he didn't want anyone to go through like personal turmoil at any point or that's, have tough that's decisions. Awesome. That's awesome. I, um, I, I yeah, I, I want more shows to just be about nothing. Uh, yeah. Uh, like you no, know, you just see the alien, and then they do the good thing because they're good guys. They're, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Like, oh, maybe sometime he, like, has a bad day and he's trying... No! No, they don't have bad days in the future. I'm Gene Roddenberry. No bad days in the future. Uh, But anyway, we'll get into that. Uh, So, yeah. So, there was an attempt in 
um, the 70s to make, uh, it was called Star Trek Phase 2, and it was going to be another five-year mission of Kirk and Company. We didn't talk about this because there was so much to talk about in the motion picture. They had almost everyone back on board. There was about 13 scripts written, um, and it was finally scrapped. I'll save you. There's whole books written about it, but it was finally scrapped, and the pilot or the repilot for that was turned into Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which is one of the other reasons you get uh, what is it, Decker and Ileana from that movie, because they were supposed to be permanent crew members that were added as a couple of cast members hadn't fully signed on and stuff like that. P.S. If you haven't figured out, Commander Will Decker. <laughs> And Ileana, a weird mystical alien with a past relationship, uh, may have inspired two people in the pilot. Can you guess who? Oh, I just I can't even think of the two. Um, is really, it, you don't remember those two in is, the motion? Oh no, I see what you're doing. Is Sorry. it is it uh, Wesley and Wesley's mother? Yep, Data and Georgie, Jordy, <laughs> Georgie, 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 Porgie, Georgie, Georgie. Uh, <laughs> You said a show about nothing, and now I have Seinfeld in my head. Because um, you know how you get uh, shows in your head, like songs sometimes, Peter? Mm-hmm. Keep up. Um, Way to go, so, showhead. Yeah, but uh, they ended up making the motion picture, and there was still this idea of, like, we should do another television series. So they started uh, casting for it in the 80s when the movies were really – were kind of at their peak, right? They did Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home. Movies are doing well. That's, they're like, let's make another series. Uh, we'll cast unknowns, we'll set it so far in the future it won't affect the movies, and it was really seen initially by both fans and TV critics as, like, a slap in the face to the legacy of Star Trek. That, like, really, like, why would you make, who cares about these people? There's no Kirk, there's no McCoy, there's no Spock, like... It was kind of seen as an also-ran. And the other reason, too, is that for a lot – again, a lot of complicated reasons I'm not going to go into. There's whole books about it, but I've read them. They decided to do it to try to do this show in syndication. They felt like that was their best shot to – which was kind of a new market at the time – to make the show popular. It doesn't have to get certain ratings. They didn't want what happened to – uh, the original series to find out that it has a limited or, or a niche audience really affect it uh, and, and a network wanted to move it around. It's like, nope, we'll just sell it to all these local you know, stations individually and they can air it whenever, which is why my experience of watching it Saturdays at six is probably different than if, you know, your dad probably watched it on a whole different network, you know, a mm-hmm. whole different uh he may have watched it on NBC. I watched it on my equivalent of ABC, like, and on and on and on. Like, as long as we're selling these packages to the show, we'll be successful. It doesn't necessarily matter if the ratings are really, really good. We just need it to be good enough to continue to sell. So it gives us some time to grow our wings, knowing that it wouldn't be necessarily easy to separate from uh, from the original series. Uh, which, you know, this was a time when that kind of stuff wasn't done as often, like reboots or, you know, long sequels with whole different casts. Um, and it was coming, you know, say what you will, like you said, Kirk, McCoy, the way you were like, ah, a whole new crew. I really like these guys. Uh, that's how the public felt in 1987, Peter. Like, ah, I don't know. Now, now red means command. There's a lot <laughs> oh to yeah, that's to. another thing I noticed. Is they shuffle, they shuffle the uniforms around 
but in yeah. a way that like I was we spent a decent amount of time complaining about uh, how in the movies like in one movie the outfits would be horrific I think it's in the first I think it's every even movie the outfits are good um because I think in the first movie it has that guy the uh, first one's the pastel stuff where they're like I don't know it's Easter yeah <laughs> all the time and certain <laughs> characters have like flesh colored uh spandex yeah. jumpsuits and it just looks yeah, like there's yeah. naked dudes walking around the ship and i'm like i know it's a utopian future but not that utopian um come on guys and, uh and uh, this this show i watched all these episodes and i was like oh yeah the costume game is just great throughout um which is not true of the original show uh, or the movies and the i actually think it, the costume game picks Oh, go ahead. And in uh, Picard has a rad jacket in Darmic. Oh, that, that jacket rules! It's a, yeah, it's a fucking good jacket. Gotta tell you, that's the debut of that jacket. They started that for season five. They're like, let's give him a jacket. It's also because uh, uh, Patrick Stewart fucking hated that costume. So they're like, give me a jacket. I'll look rad. It took him four it seasons won't be as to tight. get a jacket. Well, you know, it's fifth season. They're about to have contract renewals. Yeah, get him the jacket before season six. We're a ratings hit. They're like, he's really going to hammer us on salary. Yeah, dude. Do you hear about the Friends cast getting a million dollars an episode? Oh, my God. They're like, no, it's 1991. Patrick might kill the show. He might kill the show. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Do you hear about the cast of Wings getting paid $8 an episode? We can't do this. I don't know if Friends was on. What's the uh, growing pains later season? Here, Kirk Cameron converted to Christianity and fired his fired someone for being in Playboy. What if Patrick does it? Patrick does it, and like they expect him to come in and like demand a a, you know five hundred thousand dollars an episode, and he comes and he's just like jacket. What? I want want a jacket. Cool jacket. Uh, Yeah, but you have to wear it over the uniform you hate, as it is. So, so it may be yeah. whatever he says. <laughs> uh, What's his catchphrase? Make it so. Make it so. Yeah. So it, so make it, it so. Be. I like so it should be too. Um, so it should be. <laughs> so uh, it should be. Nailed it. Yeah, we're gonna have to get good Patrick Stewart impressions by the time this is done. Uh, yeah, the show wasn't oh, really God. hit until um, the third season is really where they're starting to crank out like pretty classic episodes on almost a weekly basis. That continues a pace through season six, and then seven has some good episodes, but also it's kind of time to be done. Little, little out of gas, um, in some ways. Um, and uh, the show becomes a huge hit in between seasons three and seasons four. So season three, which we're gonna we're gonna watch this episode in two episodes before we do first contact after generations but the season three cliffhanger was is kind of considered the platonic ideal of television cliffhangers uh up there with who shot jr it's consistently still ends up on like one of the best television episodes of all time list as a matter of fact tv guide or someone made or entertainment weekly made like best uh, top 25 best episodes of television of all time and i think this one was like 16 in 2006 and then they uh, redid it in 2016 and went up to like eight uh and it was one of those things where like who shot jr even though i was never a dallas fan or really even know what the fuck that's about i don't know who did shoot shoot jr who knows yeah you're but uh, not that kind of old i'm not that kind of my parents watched dallas uh, at 8 p.m. on whatever day it was, that's when we had to go to our rooms because it was Dallas time. But anyway, um, people talked about it all summer, um, which is what you want a cliffhanger to do. 
And uh, it really, by the time season four came out, it was attracting like big ratings. I think some of the final seasons hit the 20 plus million a season, which is was just insane for a show in syndication. So um, not a breakaway success, but one that insane really, for now for the biggest shows on TV that aren't it would, NCIS. Do 8 million. Yeah, it would be. No, I mean, NCIS does like eight or nine million or something. Yeah. Like uh, it, it would be the biggest show. On TV, so it really was a huge hit, which made you know the their series ended in uh, nineteen ninety four June. A movie comes out that November that they were shooting in between season six and seven. That's how big it was going to be. They're like, we need to get a movie out right away. Uh, and then also they launched Deep Space Nine in the middle of season in between season five and season six. Like that's so. This really is the kind of the. I think what you would call the golden age of Star Trek, you still have next uh, TOS movies getting produced. Next Generation becomes kind of a phenomenon. Um, you end up having this huge influx of like books and merchandise and video games. They launch a whole second Star Trek series on through syndication. Then, uh, you know, then Next Generation is making movies and you still have Voyager then launches like in the third season of Deep Space Nine, so like it really was, and but eventually there there's a crash. But this, uh, which we'll talk about at some point with Enterprise, uh, before it kind of gets its mojo back again with J.J. Uh, Abrams reboot and now Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. So, um, but it also really had trouble finding its feet because you had a lot of. You had a lot of conflict with some of the writers. The writer staff season one and two didn't last. Um, you had this conflict with Gene Roddenberry that he wanted to tell these, like, he wanted to tell original series or Star Trek Phase Two episodes. He didn't want to tell anything that produ- – uh, Rick Berman didn't want to have anything with continuity that, like, you had to – so even though, like, the some of the, the – the writers that you that uh, are really well known through here, like Michael Pillar, or probably Peter. Did you ever watch Battlestar Galactica? Do you know Ronald Moore? Ron Moore, Ronald D. Moore. That that very same Moore. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Okay. Are you saying just because um, I'm a Moran, I would know Ronald D. Moore? No, Battlestar Galactica is very good, and, and he's one I of the watched, writers. Uh, he was sorry. Was he was he a showrunner on the reboot of Battlestar Galactica in two thousand four or the? Yes, yes. Oh yeah, I watched the first season of Battlestar Galactica. I liked it. I don't remember why I dropped off, but I liked it enough. Yeah, and it, it stays pretty good. I think mostly till the end. Um, but I mean, that's a very like continuity based show, and he's got his. There's so many good like showrunners. It's kind of like Buffy and Angel. Like when you go look at those, you find all these people that ended up doing things or working on things you may like or love. And Star Trek: Next Generation is very much like that. You just had a. Uh, by the third, fourth season, you kind of have an abundance of riches, and they play off each other really well. Some people go. On to, like, create Deep Space Nine, like Michael Piller and Ira Stephen Burr, who um, probably, like, kind of make, I think, maybe not the best episodes of Star Trek, but the best, uh, I think, the series was from season three through, like, season seven. Um, And a darker, different type of Star Trek that still kind of adheres to the things that you like about Star Trek. Like, it doesn't become grim dark, but it it is definitely uh, has an arc that's very compelling and some great one-off episodes and you know has an Af- uh, black captain um in avery brooks who's just an amazing character and really tackles a lot of like america's history of racism and some other stuff in a way that's very um 
Like, how did we get from, you know, the, uh, you know, 1990s Earth to this utopia? And is it a utopia? Is the Federation still treating certain races in certain ways and uh, or certain alien species in certain ways and stuff like that? So great, great, great show. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of arguments between the Michael Pillars, Jerry Taylors and Ronald Moores. Uh, with with the Rick Bermans and the Gene Roddenberrys about like what their show was to be, and so they had to fight for like okay we'll do a Wharf episode each season and that'll be our way to tell a little bigger of a story than a two part or a um or a uh, single single episode. And Rick Berman even says in interviews he's like yeah my job wasn't to write it wasn't to create my job was to tell them no like what I had someone he said. Maybe that made me unpopular. Maybe I would have done things differently. But um, I'd look out for the business side and protect what the concept of Trek was. And so, uh, yeah, you know, which, of course, I think Peter, you and I hearing that just thinks that fucking sucks. Now, he did have a lot of influence in getting the show made in the first uh, place. He did uh, help to spin it off with Deep Space Nine. But you kind of want like and also Next Generation was great for most of it. But Everything about Rick Berman and and even Gene Roddenberry's early um, early involvement seemed to be holding the show back. And once there was more faith in the writers, once there was a more consistent writing staff and showrunner, once Gene Roddenberry had to take a step back for his health, um, you kind of start going off to the races with season three on. And can I jump um, in there really quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that uh, interested me. Um, Encounter at Farpoint, the first episode, is written by... Two names that caught my eye. One, Gene Roddenberry, because I was like, wasn't he kind of sidelined at this point? Or, you know, at least in an executive producer role, guiding on a satellite level. And then DC Fontana. And I was like, that name sounds really familiar. Who is he? And then I Googled it and I was like, oh, DC Fontana is a lady, Dorothy Catherine Fontana. And she has a fascinating story that she worked as like Gene Roddenberry's secretary on the original show and then became a writer and often because of sexism, she used the um, she used the DC, name DC, yeah. uh, DC, but she also credited herself as Michael Richards and uh, <laughs> J. Michael Bingham. Quick question. Do you think that uh, she wrote Michael Richards' uh, set for the Laugh Factory that one day? Yeah, definitely. Um but anyways. 100% because I think I think she was probably like I've suffered so much in misogyny I would like to make other people also suffer <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so she's she like uh, for a period of time she was the youngest story editor in Hollywood um, which is crazy like she was just a she lived a very interesting life she died until she died in 2019 but she wrote on original series um, the animated yep. series TNG. Wrote so books. She, yes. Yeah. And she worked on TNG and uh, Deep Space Nine, um, which is interesting. Yeah. So, like, the name caught my eye because of, uh, not because of sp- any specific Star Trek knowledge, but because of um, sort of hearing great stories of women in Hollywood stories over the years. Um, like, yeah. oh, did you know that uh, a woman helped uh, create Star Trek? Did you know that a woman was, uh, you know, a big part of the Swamp Thing creation? Did you know that blah, 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 blah. Um, so these amazing yeah. ho- these amazing old Hollywood stories that often get buried because, you know, women, women uh, are often sidelined. Um, but the fact that she wrote the goddamn... Uh, She's credited at least as the as the secondary, the co-writer of the goddamn pilot for this show. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, she she was a big part. She's and she shows up everywhere when you were like there. There are names that like you get to know just from seeing documentaries and reading all these books and obviously watching the shows. And that was definitely one. I, I, I always thought she had a cool name too, DC Fontana. But DC yeah, I remember Fontana. reading it's. You know when you see her on like a behind the scenes thing and some. Uh, it's oh Dorothy Font. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, because um, I knew the name yeah. was important somehow for Hollywood history, and then I googled it. And yeah, I, I had this, I had the sort of sexist assumption that it was a man, or maybe, um, you know, given the sexism of most industries at the time, uh, maybe just pragmatic uh, assumption that it was yeah. a man. Um, yeah. and yeah, it's 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 interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about Encounter and Farpoint and how it was actually released? Because I'm seeing it credited as the 1987 feature film, and oh, so it wasn't it wasn't released to theaters. It was just shot. It was originally shown as a two hour like premiere movie on TV, and then it was cut down into two parts for reruns and okay. syndication. So and I yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting because I when I was watching it, I didn't really know that. I just did you watch in. the two part? Did you watch? Um, Cause like I I guess I have the Blu-rays. I had the option to watch it as two parts or as a movie, and I chose movie because I think there's more to it. Did you um, watch it as a movie? I watched it parts? as a movie. So on Amazon Prime, it's um, on Amazon Prime, it, it's it's just one thing, and I know okay. that because I, it was whatever minute fifty-five, and as somebody who kind of like knew the length of a Star Trek episode or knew, you know, the rough length yeah. of what TV was hey, this wait time. Wait a like, minute. I was like, holy shit, this is a long episode. Like within five or 10 minutes of when the episode would have ended, it, it, like at 55 minutes, yeah. I paused and I was like, oh, this is like a full thing. And then I paused there and then I poked around a little bit more and, and did a, like a modicum of research. But I'm mostly, again, one of our prime directives here is uh, for me to get caught up on the show and for you yeah, to kind of take me on this journey. And yeah. for, I'm going to do some cursory research as I go on like the individual movies and such, but uh, yeah. I want I kind of want you to walk me through the story. Yeah, well, really quickly, before we get into the, the, the episodes, I want to talk a little bit about, because Next Generation is really what took me from, um, I like watching Star Trek occasionally with my dad or seeing these movies to... A true, like, obsessive for a few years. Um, and Deep Space Nine was actually something... I, I have seen every episode of Deep Space Nine. Actually, ironically, Deep Space Nine is the only series I've seen every episode of because um, I bought all the, the the seasons when I was in college and went all the way through as opposed to just trying to catch it when I could. They're still... I actually made a list uh, last night. Uh, I was so excited to record this episode. of like, what are the next-gen and TOS episodes I've still never seen? Because I know there's a few. And part of that is because, so, um, yeah, I, I watch these occasionally with my dad. They were on Saturdays at 6. I wasn't in bed. Sometimes he'd let me watch them with him. He didn't get to watch them all the time either. Um, and it wasn't until the last season that we were watching it almost every single week. And I was legitimately excited for the finale. Which was, I mean, hugely publicized. They did a huge, like, Saturday marathon. They ne- we didn't have cable. They never did marathons on, like, ABC for anything. I'd go over to my friend's house with cable, and they'd be doing Godzilla marathons. I'd be like, fuck you, I just get to watch one and then wait a week. But they did, like, the ten most popular Star Trek episodes. It was hosted by Jonathan Franks. They did a documentary. And I got to watch all that. And then they did the the finale, which we'll we'll definitely talk about at some point. Please don't do any research on that. Um and it wasn't until after that's like that's like fifth grade for me. And then I just am so like into it. 
Um, we lived two blocks away from a library that I could walk to. So I started going to um, the library constantly and checking out like uh, – so much like other series, they did some novelizations of some of the episodes. But they also had a very healthy um, – we're going to release original Star Trek fiction stories like a Star Wars or other popular sci-fi stuff. Uh, and there was tons of these books. I would go out and check out my max limit of Star Trek books and read a book every two days. Uh, I'd check out all the books they had. And they had a lot, the nonfiction books, uh, called like Chronology or Compendium or Companion. Um, and sometimes, or the Nitpicker's Guide to Star Trek, because it would show si- uh, behind the scenes stuff. And like the making of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, and really, like, that was an easy way that I could, I could, uh, I couldn't watch TV when I wanted I didn't have access to watch all the show, but here's a way for me to kind of satiate that that obsession that only 11 or a 12 year old kid can can have. Uh, and then so so I'm re- so I I read about all the episodes before I had seen most of them, and actually that's that's how I had to watch these episodes, Peter. So um, part of the reason I've never seen a lot of them is that so they started Star Trek: Next Generation was still a big draw. For years on my local ABC station, they would show uh, a rerun a week. They would just replay through the series over and over. Right? So I would have to get our newspaper, figure out which episode was showing, and then I'd buy blank tapes and have to figure out if that was one of the ones based on reading the synopsis or trivia around each episode in these books, if that was one that was worth recording because I didn't have unlimited access to tapes either. So I would like literally go through and be like, okay, so this Saturday they're, rec- they're showing this one. That's important to this plot. I really want to see that next week. Oh, it's, Oh, uh, data finds love. I don't care about that. Like, and then eventually they started showing them um, five nights a week, every night at like 11 PM for like a year. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get more tapes and I'm just going to record them no matter what, even if, just so I can see them. Um, and it was the same thing with kind of the original series. So then I got super into the original series, too, even though I had seen, like I said, some of that. But that wasn't shown in syndication. So my way of, like, getting that was finding video rental stores that would rent you individual episodes, which I wasn't able to go. Like, I couldn't just go to a video rental store half the time. But I would sometimes, like, have a way to go and, like, if I do this, can I go rent five Star Trek episodes? And I would go rent five and I'd get to watch them. And it might be a month or two months later, but I'm still reading about all the episodes and all that stuff through there. So it was a ton of work to see these fucking episodes. Um, because you couldn't just go and like, oh, is it on Netflix? Do I have to buy it? Where is it streaming? They didn't even have seasons of it. Like you, I had to just like set the timer, hope no one fucked up the VCR, you know, hope I got the episode, hope the tape wasn't shitty, all the other things. And then like eventually sort of pieced my way through a good chunk of the next generation. And then of course, by the time the DVD sets come out when I'm in college, I didn't do too much of like going back to the ones that I had missed. I did a lot of I get to rewatch all these in non-shitty VHS unlabeled format cuz I I was like a crazy person. I just had tapes and tapes and I didn't label anything. So I'd be like, "Oh, I know that one. I think oh, if that one has preemptive strike, then I know it's going to circle back." So that's how you watch the last Yeah, outpost, and you're like, and "Oh, that the memory box tape has I it obviously would not be uh, you know, sins of the father because we didn't have memory box tapes then. Uh, what you really need are the you know re- recorded decks 
uh, tapes, which are, uh, you know, much newer. It'll give me a much, much crisper picture because dad didn't record the Super Bowl over that one. <laughs> exactly. So, like, you just – I so – and that's part of the reason why I know so much about Star Trek because I just – in my ideal world, I'm just sitting and watching Star Trek all the time, but I didn't have that option because I wasn't able to watch stuff and but I could always read. So I was and and thankfully my library had more than enough Star Trek stuff. Uh, and then I would get stuff for, you know, Christmas. So here's a book about the the Encyclopedia of Star Trek or uh uh one of my first uh <laughs> my parents got me like the Star Trek Encyclopedia, which was like a CD. CD-ROM, you know, like it was in Carta or some shit, Wikipedia for Star Trek. Um, and you just go and read and it would show clips from all the shows and stuff like that. So, and Deep Space Nine was in the middle of its run at this point too. So I kind of felt like, well, how can I, how can I possibly, so I, I would try to record Deep Space Nine, but it was infrequent and I was in the middle of it. So Deep Space Nine took me forever to finally get back into it. But once they did release all the seasons, I bought them all and I watched them in college. Um, but yeah, it like, that's part of the reason I know so fucking much about this show is not, not because I was on like internet movie database and like, you know what, not that that's bad, but I, I literally was just like, how there's so much of this thing. How do I get more of this thing? And, uh, and just, you know, a lot of effort around trying to watch these fucking episodes, uh, that were very, like they were. There was not a way, unless I guess you were rich and probably had like some time life thing where like, I'm going to spend $30 on each episode of Star Trek because uh, I'm a crazy person. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I'll say this and then we'll break and we'll go into the episode by episode. Um, I feel like something that you just exerted that much time on uh, and have done so much of. Like, I'm not really going back and revisiting it that much. Um, love, still love Star Trek. Loved the newer movies for the most part. You know, and finally getting around to Discovery. But, like, I'm not going back usually and watching Yesterday's Enterprise that I've seen 20 times. And read about a hundred times over and over again, right? Like, uh, so one of the really things that... This really was fun for me to revisit all these episodes. And I was surprised... How much I was like, um, oh, yes, more Star Trek to watch tonight. Like, I was really excited once I started watching these. I was super – it wasn't something where I've seen it so many times that, like, you're kind of half paying attention and and half on your phone because I don't need to watch this to be able to talk about it. It's that ingrained in my memory. I was, like, compelled. I was excited. I'm even more – I've been pouring over a little bit like, um, okay, what would be some other good ones? How can we structure this so you get some other good episodes in there? Like, this has been extremely fun for me to have an excuse to revisit all these um, as well. Um, Especially in these fucking remasters, which we don't have time to get into. Look up how they did the HD Blu-rays. Fucking insane. But they look gorgeous. Uh, And 100% worth it. But yeah, I just want to say this... This has been so much fun to go back through, and um, I I can't wait to talk about all these episodes and uh, many more, (laughs) many more to come. And I will apologize in advance if you're like, hey, Aaron, weren't we supposed to move on? Like, you're showing me some (laughs) other codas, but like, I'm sorry, Peter, this this really is when we talk about like the meat and potatoes of my love of Star Trek. uh, I love most of it, but 
Next Generation episodes is really like, if I had to pick one Star Trek thing to have the rest of my life and only one thing, it would be Next Generation. Yeah, and for me, like, the Next Generation seems like the thing I would actually return to. Like, I enjoyed uh, the original show, the original series, as a... As, as uh, you know, both with legitimate enjoyment and as a novelty, but, like, my heart wasn't attached to it the way that, like, uh, it is to some of the movies. Like, I'll definitely rewatch Wrath of Khan and 3, probably actually, two, probably the original 4, I'll end up watching again and again a few times in my life. But the original show, like, if I return to the original show, it's to see episodes I haven't seen yet. Um, yeah. With this, I could see me being like, I do want to, you know, scratch that itch. I don't know if I'll necessarily go back and watch an entire season of it, but when it, when this is all over, I could see myself being like, I want to watch Encounter and Farpoint again. I want to remember how we're introduced to Kirk and how the show felt and all of that, um, and get a taste of that texture. Um, but, uh, get a feel for that. And texture. you're going to be like, Hey, Aaron told me that data fucks Tasha Yar. But we never, we watched 30 episodes. We never watched that episode. Yeah. You're Googling, like, episode where Data fucks Tasha Yar. <laughs> because it's 3 a.m. and you're asleep and not responding to your 18 text messages. <laughs> yeah. uh, second episode. It's crazy. I anyway. I can also guarantee I, I forgot that, that they referenced enough, it. I could find uh, a, a uh, video on Pornhub that is taking that and then when they cut away to it uh a shitty uh videotape uh porn parody um i'm sure i could find that on pornhub uh yeah i 100 percent. i'm sure you could uh also so denise crosby made a documentary in like 1997 called trekkies about trekkie fandom and interviews brett spiner and shows fan art that's been sent to her of those two having sex <laughs> it's very I, right. yeah i'm gonna have to watch this <laughs> Uh, Trekkies? Trekkies, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I like the idea also just of her uh, perspective as somebody who was uh, sort of uh, left the show of her own accord and then was like, you know, maybe I didn't no, do I, the, Maybe Maybe I should have been, you know, just taking offers in off-season or something. Yeah, Trekkies the first thing. She tried to make like a come, uh, Johnny Come Lately sequel, Trekkies 2, in like 2006, I want to say. That wasn't as interesting, but yeah, Trekkies in 97 is pretty good. It's also like really pre-internet fandom, so it's when there was conventions all the time. I mean, obviously the internet was around and Trekkies were some of the first people on it. Um, Also, speaking of which, you know we're wrapping up. Like, when we're done with this show, which may be a while, or at least we're going to take a break, you know we're wrapping it up with Galaxy Quest. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay, just wanted to be clear. Uh, All right, no, but we got a lot of do is Go we're going to I figure what we're going to do when the show is over is we uh we when we get through all the we get through the movies at the correct pace, taking little stops to <laughs> you, you know maybe do chunks of episodes with next gen, yeah. maybe doing some we're gonna do space a few chunks. 9, whatever whatever journey you want to take us on. Um I would love to do Galaxy Quest. I would love to do yep. uh Trekkies. I would love to do Planet oh, of the yeah. Vampires and stuff that's like, de- yeah. like directly inspired by Star Trek. Not stuff. Yeah, that'd like, be fun. I-, I would love to do like a sort of a inspired by uh, inspired by series that sort of because I-, I think on We Love to Watch we don't make a lot of room for those uh, for those type of uh, movies. Those no, type of it's shows. it's tough. And because uh, like, you're like because we have to build a month around it it's like well okay if we're gonna do galaxy class what are we gonna do like star trek well probably not yeah <laughs> you want to talk about star trek 
Yeah, uh, and, and I, I think it would be, and if if you know, now that I've seen Star Trek, there's no way I can watch Planet of the Vampires and not completely compare it to Star Trek. Um, <laughs> in a similar sense, there's no way I can watch Galaxy Quest and not be informed by these watches. So, like, I don't actually want to do any of the movies that I would actually compare to Star Trek and We Love to Watch because we're just going to start talking about Star Trek anyways. So let's just, yeah. I, I'd say when this is over. Do it. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Before we do all that, we got to start with where it all began again uh, with some uh, crazy lunatics torturing space squids while a god yells at them to figure it out quicker. Peter, are we ready to go through... Uh, a few next generation episodes we are we yar 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 peter let's start at the very beginning a very good place to start uh when it sounds what is d uh do d stands for do re mi as in the enterprise nc7 1901D. Mm-hmm. That whole thing didn't mm-hmm. work at all. I forgot words. I forgot how how uh, sentences work. That's actually very but... appropriate because did you know that the Heaven's Gate cult was very into sci-fi? Uh, they, I would assume they uh, they <laughs> if they're if they're into wizards, they really fucked up. <laughs> they they their two primary sort of uh, patriarch and matriarchs uh, were I think Doe and T. Oh, of course, yeah. Everyone knows that. Like referencing the scales? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know that, obviously. But you would, because I think Heaven's Gate, that's uh, California, right? It's a San Diego local cults. Chopping off genitals, killing yourself, wearing sneakers, all the local San Diego stereotypes. You just gotta get in that spaceship. It's behind the common! Quick, wear your sneakers! I just wanna fly! Yeah, that was popular, I think, about the same era. So do you think it's Cut Sugar Ray's fault? off, baby. <laughs> Wear my Nikes and my Reeboks. I don't remember <laughs> if they wore, so I went both. Uh, just it be weird if it's a, some, Someone's at home right now going, it's fucking Adidas, you idiot! <laughs> you, you, you gave yourself room for two answers and you got them both wrong? Uh, now! Speaking of weirdo aliens, uh, Star Trek. So this is the pilot aired as a two-hour uh, premiere. Uh, Peter, you may have figured out either through research or just kind of understanding story structures that it was meant to be a one-hour pilot, and then they said, "Let's make this a two-hour pilot," and they added all the Q stuff. And I noticed uh, because... as I was scrolling through episodes to get to um, not looking too close, but scrolling through episodes to get to the, uh, the episodes we're going to be covering today. Uh, I noticed a lot of episodes had Q in the title. So this, this little trickster is going to be back. I've got a feeling he's going to be back. Uh, yeah. So Q is probably my favorite non regular Star Trek character. He has some great actual moments. He has some very funny episodes, uh, Q was the person when there was a Q episode, even my dad was like, I, I still remember Deja Q when Q shows up before like the credit sequence. And he was like, literally like a, like a child going Q, Q. <laughs> like he was like, he said Q out loud, like in a, Oh shit. 
like voice. And I still like that has burned itself in my memory just because I was like, oh, I've never heard my dad react like that to a piece of media. This is the only one where he's kind of the judge of humanity eventually just becomes a guy that visits and like has an attachment to Picard challenges them or sometimes needs help uh we'll we'll definitely show some q episodes uh after we get through some of these other ones but yeah so first first day out of the gate <laughs> they're driving to their first mission ready to pick up the rest of q all of a sudden uh oh uh, a god stops them with a net and is like you guys humans suck here's a little view of your barbaric past um you don't get to go to your mission. Uh, he says, like, hey, stop putting us on trial. Q's like, great, a trial? Excellent idea. Puts humanity on trial for not being sophisticated enough to roam the stars. Uh, the test, then, is them, them solving their unrelated mission, where you can kind of see it was kind of an add to an already completed script. Um, they go to this planet, uh, the Farpoint Station, which they was built quickly. It's architecture no one understands and seems to be magic. They pick up Riker, Jordy, Beverly. And you do get these little vignettes where you get to meet all the crew, get to have them meeting each other. Uh, when they're out running Q, they separate the saucer section from the nacelle section. Yeah, we're going to need to talk about uh, that something quite a bit. That they, We're going to need to talk about that quite yeah. a bit. So, yeah, we will. Uh, that was something they thought they were going to do a lot and then barely ever used it on the show. But anyway, uh, so they eventually figure out that the the reason that Farpoint has its po- was has its power and its magic is that they have the 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 Bandai, I think they're called, uh, have captured an alien and who can change forms and create uh, turn energy into matter. Um, and they are using him to create the station by, by by kind of torturing him with a small amount of energy, not enough to escape, but enough to live if he continues to, to serve their will. Um, its mate shows up, um, and they Picard finally figures it out while being taunted by Q that he's never going to figure it out. And... And they uh, give give the station energy so it can turn back into its, uh, I guess, real form. Um, it's like a giant space squid. They go about their way and Q's like, all right, I'll honor the deal. But uh, this probably won't be the last time you you um, you see me. Uh, so, yeah, you get little vignettes of the characters. You get some interactions. The interactions definitely it's a pilot. So there's a lot of things that the changes. I'm sh- sure you notice, Peter, like. Um, like Troy doesn't telepathically communicate to Riker ever again. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, that was one thing that was it was a gap here was um, their general relationship. Uh, it feels like it got really professional right after this episode. So it it comes back as relationships and stuff like that. And there's an episode I don't know if we'll watch where uh, second chances. Where there's like, hmm, maybe we rekindle this. But yeah, I hinted at it does definitely come up occasionally. Um, a hinted at romance in the past um, that seems like it was going to be a bigger thing. That's a lot of like pilot to air, right? They shoot it, they get the pickup, they go from there. There's there's a good list of, I had a book that listed all the changes of things they stopped doing in the pilot. Um, Picard is also, Picard actually the whole first season, we didn't, we, this is the only first season episode we watched. Picard's whole thing was like, um, and, and one thing was consistent was that Riker and Picard were going to be a little more at each other's throat, that uh, they respected each other, but weren't going to be warm or friendly. That changed pretty quickly after the first season. Uh, they didn't want 
a Picard, a captain yeah, who calls him number one is sort of a cute thing. Like, uh, there's a couple episodes where he calls him number one. It's clearly like a term of affection, but I feel like that's stemming from the fact that the writers knew that there had been previous conflict. Yes. Um, and there actually isn't that much con- like the first season has a lot of like, uh, we respect each other. You're my first officer. I'm not friends with my crew. I'm not warm towards people. Children scare me. He mentions that. Oh, yeah. We got to talk a lot yeah. about my my preconceptions of what Picard was and what actually he is in the show. Yeah, it does change, like, but that kind of, like, him trying to always maintain a little bit of a social distance between the people he commands, even if it gets warmer and they have more in-jokes, uh, kind of stays throughout the show, but they do become friendly and he trusts his crew a lot more. Like, that kind of, like, um, uh, another thing that stays throughout it is, uh, and they did this because um, they didn't want another thing where Picard's always going on the away team missions like Kirk. Like, they wanted to separate them as characters. That it makes it seem like Riker is like, nope, my captain doesn't go on away missions. Where later they kind of establish that Starfleet protocol. Like, don't send your captain down to a planet. Send some other officers. In this case, you know, your second in command as needed. Um, and that stays throughout it too. It's it's actually super rare to see Picard go on an away team mission. He's usually commanding things from the bridge, even if you didn't really get a sense of that from 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 these episodes. So yeah, Peter, let's get. We're not going to drill down to all these episodes in a lot of detail, but you're meeting a lot of people. Some you knew, some you didn't. You're getting a sense of a characters that will change quite a bit from the incarnation we get to see them. What what was your vibe? And also you're meeting one of the most famous antagonists in the series of Q. What was your what was your thing watching this? Alright, so I've got some big reactions here. One, Picard is a big stiff, and uh watching him soften as the show went on uh was a relief because um yeah. and the first episode I was like, oh shit, is do people just like him because he's like a admirable, uh, no pun intended, and, and the best actor on the show? Yes, like not yeah. even close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> an admirable icon of uh, leadership that he's uh, he's both you know stern and has his vision, but also he like if you make your pitch, he might change his plan entirely around it. Like, and he's flexible. Um, like he, he is, he is a, he is a perfect image of what a leader is, but I feel like what me saying that is something that I realized watching the later episodes when I realized like he was willing to, uh, listen to his crew ask, you know, make personal demands. And in the first episode, he yells at, he yells at Wesley for being on the, on the bridge, which also like speaks for the audience. Like I, I had heard some, uh. Let's 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 stick with Wesley for a second. I had heard some, um, I don't know, like I had seen some memes, or you know, not actually seen memes because this is way too old for that. But like, uh, sort of heard a, what you would consider like visual memes, jokes about Wesley being on the show, about them adding a kid to sort of add some uh, some family flavor. A super genius kid. Yeah, like the most insufferable brand. Um. Uh, and like even shows like Venture Brothers mock the concept. Like it's 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 it, it, he's he's as annoying in the episodes I saw as the reputation would insist. Partially because now I like <laughs> Will Wheaton has like 
just prune himself to be an annoying nerd who needs several swirlies. Um, but like the thing is that here's the thing. Ewoks have a similar reputation and I like Ewoks. Short Round has a similar reputation and, you know, barring the racism, I gen- generally like Short Round. Like, I think he's a charming character. Like, I'm I'm actually not against a lot of these sort of like uh, <laughs> scrappy-doo, but not scrappy-doo, uh, Godzuki, but not Godzuki, like, let's add a kid to the cast kind of additions. Uh, I'm generally not actually as violently against them as fans are. Um, and I, I really did not like Wesley. So worth noting, uh, so Will Wheaton says this about the character, which I agree with, is that so they introduced him as like, we're going to have a kid and he's going to be super smart. It's going to be a different type of character because the whole point of the Enterprise, which you got a little taste of, I think, mostly in Reunion, but the whole point of the new, this takes place 75 years after the original series we saw, is that these are like, these are family ships you bring, if you have a wife, if you have kids. You have a husband, whatever, spouse, they come on board, your kids come on board, like they have schools. I actually like that development a lot. I like the idea that it establishes more on like what's going on in this massive ship. Because I remember halfway through our run of the original series, me being like, oh, the ship is that big? Well, in this case, the ship really is. So uh, the crew of the original Enterprise is about 250. This is over a thousand. Um, uh-huh. okay. so this is, I mean, the size and scope is supposed to be bigger and they're supposed to have like family quarters and a bunch of other things. So I like the idea, like, Hey, we're setting this up for like these, these aren't all people that abandon their families to go into space. This is, this is not a five-year military mission. This is like your explorers, your doctors, this is your job. Like people live on their starships in a lot of cases. And so like, I think that was kind of their intention. Like, let's add, someone who kind of isn't part of the crew because we can do that now but uh we want him to take part in crew stuff so we're gonna make him a super genius and you know be beverly's uh son and have some relationship to picard as well uh well that's an annoying trope and the first two seasons in general weren't that great at writing characters let alone plots so you kind of had will wheaton describes it as like a like a bell curve like the writing for Wesley starts out terrible in the way it starts out terrible for most people, but because Wesley's playing the character that's the trickiest to make work for writing in general, like he suffers the most. And then for a while there, he actually gets, he stops becoming so annoying. He grows up a little. He actually becomes an, like he takes, he just becomes, he's wearing the red uniform. He's on the ship. He's part of the crew. Like he grows up a little bit. And then he says that then the writing got a different kind of terrible where it was like, fuck, we got to do Wesley episodes. I don't care. about like, no, none of the writers were that interested in trying to make him work anymore. And so he leaves the show midway through the fourth season. So you actually didn't have much Wesley. Uh, there are some good Wesley episodes. If you might, if I um, might say, uh, I no. called him uh, Wesley because somebody better change his diaper. He's a baby. Uh, yeah, he's also very wet in Encountering a Fart Point because he, they're like, how do we use him? I don't know. He falls in the water at the mm-hmm. holodeck. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually, he just falls in the water to cover up the fact that he wet his diaper. Yeah, this also a big change for you. They have holodecks. I'm sure you've heard of them, heard the memes. I've heard rumor of, of the holodeck, but you're going to have to explain yeah. what the fuck it is. Can you die in the holodeck? Is it like a video game in a movie where if you die in the game, you die for real? Um, uh, no. So essentially it is, it is like, VR. Um, 
it uh, it works like except you can establish whatever programs and it, it's displaying the holographic imagery uh, to you in the moment. So eventually they like you can act through novels like a video game. Sometimes it's just scenery. You see a little bit of like Worf's training programs in one of them. I mean that he uses. I mean like, like the but it's, Worf's training program. Uh, that scene is a lot less dramatic knowing that he couldn't have gotten murked by those uh, those no. jungle scum. Nope. So uh, it can. There's safety procedures that make you so that uh, you basically can't. You can shoot a gun at someone. You can't can't get actually hurt in the in the holodeck. Besides, like falling from like you know, you can be fake climbing a mountain and trip and like twist your ankle, which occasionally happens. But but nothing like like that. That knife can't actually stab you through the heart. Like mm-hmm. that gun phaser can't actually shoot you. The way it supposedly works, too, is an elaborate series of virtual conveyor belts and holographic imagery that is constantly changing your perspective. So even though it's in that giant room, that's why they're like, oh, the wall's there. If they had started walking towards it. Um, but, you know, it's essentially a magic room. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the... There's some great holodeck-themed episodes. Uh, as you can imagine, one of the big... Uh, Plot uh, themes that run through Star Trek series from here on out is what if the holodeck safety procedures broke? Yeah. Okay. So, like, I get, I, okay, the holodeck is actually a really cool idea because uh, I've been watching The Expanse kind of side by side with Star Trek. And uh, without spoiling anything, um, there's an amazing, like, lorelet, which is that in space, um, if you grew up on a, particularly if you grew up on one of like these like space colonies, when you're suffering under lower gravity, when you live under lower gravity, you're born under lower gravity, unless you are in a rich family that can afford to like counteract these effects, um, mostly with genetic modification uh, and, you know, uh, anatomical surgical, com- uh, you know, uh, changes, um, you, you you grow up with uh, birth defects and long, fragile bones and sort of bird-like bones. So certain characters that are belters and grew up in space have like uh, these 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 defects. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because there's also a character that grew up on Earth and then has been living in uh, the solar system for you know whatever decades. Um, and that fucker has a six pack, which means he must be con- anytime he's not on camera must be doing crunches because it takes so much work to maintain muscle in space because of how zero G works. Well, but not in Star Trek space. Yeah. So I, I imagine the holodeck would be incredibly useful for these long missions, not just because of uh, stimulation and needing these sort of like mental sort of games to go through and needing to feel like you're off the ship, but without risking the prime directive like you know not yeah. making a vacation uh or a shore leave on some jungle planet just because it's uh you know it reminds you of, of being in the dominican republic um the, yeah the, and it does also like exercise like wharf in these later episodes yeah. is like oh it's it's for you know exercise and to keep keep my head straight and i'm like holy shit yeah i would yeah. use the hollow deck so much because i'm someone who like if i don't get to go running or like climbing i i my my brain chemistry doesn't balance properly like it's just it's part of my my depression anxiety uh cure is that so i would be a hollow deck hollow deck addict yeah and i um could not agree more um in that 
Like, and they have episodes where, like, they go rock climbing or they go, you know, they, that's where they get their exercise. That's where they have their fun. Like, there's a lot. There's a few of them on the ship. And there's some really good, like, episodes that I know I'm going to describe as, like, dumb. Uh, they're going to sound dumb. But, like, where, like, you know, Data needs a break. So he goes to the holodeck with Jordy, and they decide to do a Sherlock Holmes novel and stuff like that. And then, uh-oh, Moriarty got too smart. <laughs> Like, like that kind of stuff, which is a, a great episode that actually has a sequel four seasons uh, later. Or um, there's actually so there's a peripheral character called Barkley who shows up in like five or six episodes. Who's just a Barkley's kind of a not very, a dog. He's a very Bark. No, not on this particular show. Uh, but uh, he is on Fraggle Rock. So if you want a Barkley that is a dog, I recommend. Uh, Fraggle Rock. If you want a Barkley who is a very un-Starfleet Federation type character, like someone with anxieties and is nervous speaking in front of people and like, he's this great character because he's like, everyone in the Federation like, yep, here I am, I'm the engineer and I'm going to do this and I get a lot of confidence and he's like a very smart person who's like, can't make friends, can't talk to anyone, doesn't know what to do, is shy, like all these kind of things. And he's a, he's in kind of a little bit abnormal on the Enterprise, and they're just like, okay, how do we get this guy? Like, what does he need? He's actually seeing the ship counselor for, like, ship counselor stuff. But at one point, they find out that he has, like, these weird, like, they don't make him full sex stuff, because I think that's irredeemable, but, like, these, like... He's he's going and being fed grapes by Dr. Crusher and Troy facsimiles on the holodeck and stuff. And everyone's like, hey, wildly inappropriate, dude. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's pretty good. Anyway. Um, yeah, so uh, not interested in him if he's not a dog, just to clarify. Well, we can go through Fraggle Rock. Start Rock. Start. <laughs> Are you ready to frag Rock? I mean, maybe, uh, maybe Fraggle means start, so we can just call it Fraggle Rock. You don't yeah. know. What it is it is no it one is is Fraggle like Smurf, where it just means whatever verb, noun, adjective? No, I think that's their that's their like race is Fraggles. Hmm. But you don't know for sure. I mean, they do call them the Fraggles. Yeah, maybe but maybe you we need a third person to join our our start Fraggle. Um, so the we... only person that knows for sure <laughs> took it to the grave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so can we can we talk about this, the sh- right, while we're talking about tech stuff? I know we're eating up time on this, but I don't care. Yeah, it's um, for this pilot. You know, we're s- s- the, s- the ship splits. Yeah, this is crazy. so the idea this was is like the, the, this is like this is like uh, this is like finding out you have like uh, like uh, I don't know a second genital set somewhere. This is like so this is like when I was a kid and uh, my dad was like, "Do you want to go up in the attic?" And I was like. What's an attic? And he was like, "You can go up in an attic. There's a space in the house I haven't seen." Before. And I assumed it was just like fucking pipes and yeah. whatever. I don't know ghosts. And he was like, "Yeah, let's go up there." And then all of a sudden, after years and years, I was like in a part of the the house I had never been in. That's how it felt when the shuttle and saucer split. I was like, I had gotten very familiar with the Enterprise, and I had no idea that it was two components that could split. So, and so the older so, Enterprises it was weren't so cool. Just to let you know. So this is the older this is ones new. were not. It's new, uh, and so there is a sense of wonder that, that they're playing very like wondrous strings in the sound in the score here. This is that that is to communicate the fact that this is a, a new development for this fucker. A new a new development for the series. Got it. So there are. F- this is the fifth ship to have the name Enterprise. Technically, I guess six with fucking that dirty Enterprise. dog. That dirty so, dog. 
you saw you saw you've actually seen four out of the five because you've seen the first one uh, NC or one seven oh one. That's the one that die uh, that blows up that dies in Star Trek Three. You've seen the Enterprise A, which is the one they you know that that shows up in Star Trek Four and is used from four through six. Uh, Star Trek the C, which was about thirty years before this one, you see in yesterday's Enterprise, and D uh, the one seven o one D is is the Enterprise you're seeing uh, today. You will also see B. B is in Star Trek Generations, so. Uh, you you will see all of the enterprises pretty quickly, um, but yes, that was a new development. The idea being is that hey, we have families on this ship, and shit happens on this ship. Uh, only the shit nacelle happens. section, the the yeah the uh, the battle bridge section, that has the one that's connected to the warp drive. The 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 saucer section only has impulse; it cannot go to warp. Uh, warp is uh, warp one is light speed. Impulse is very fast for space, but not light speed. And then, as you get higher, so it's actually a curve. This is very nerdy, but you may need to know it. So in Star Trek: The Next Generation, like warp one is the speed of light, and then everything becomes a factor of the speed of light. With warp ten being essentially impossible, um, because warp ten means you're in every spot in the universe at once. Spoiler alert. Uh, they eventually there's an episode where they hit warp ten, warp ten. Um, so like that's why you'll see them like warp nine is insanely fast, and then nine point one, nine point two gets very segmented because at that you're dealing with it's an exponential curve from one to ten, where ten is infinity. So, uh, anyways, that's a lot of nerdy stuff, but. Uh, that is probably somewhat important to know. So the saucer section can only do impulse. The idea was that anytime they have a threat, since there's families on the ship and all the crew's quarters are in the saucer section, they separate the saucer section. The... And abandon the children to be eaten by the wolves. Well, no. In theory, like a lifeboat, they're safe. Cause, and they don't have to evacuate because they're already just on no. in their home, in the quarters, in the schools. And then they go take the nacelle section to do missions in practicality i think they use it twice on the series it rarely comes up it's rad as shit because yeah like like i said the with the attic analogy like this is something that i've seen this model my entire yep. life and i was like i i don't know anything about the enterprise what what is this wait, thing? Wait, wait a second my robot becomes a car <laughs> <laughs> I, i've been playing know, robots for years you know you know uh right now i just yeah. uh really need to like get to work can my robot just be a car yeah uh yeah no don't be, again it is not brought up that much um i'm just seeing the text you sent me <laughs> um, oh, oh yeah it, it is not brought yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to put that as like the image in the episode when this goes out. Uh, I, but anyways, I just realized that my. I'll send you another image. I just realized that my uh, that these battery packs that are sitting next to me kind of look like uh, fatty phasers, like if there were shotgun phasers. Sending a oh, text yeah. Well, you saw you saw shotgun phasers. You oh, don't yeah, usually yeah, see yeah. shotgun phasers. We'll get there. They're, they're so, long phasers. I, I, so really, I, quick. I like a Klingon with a long laser. You know, <laughs> um, what did you? So we'll move on from this. So as an, you know, I think as a pilot, it's actually pretty good. I think it's um, dope as it, shit. 
Yeah. What did you think of Q? Uh, Q is annoying at first because Q uh, speaks like a theater kid, and I wished to uh, give him many noogies upon the scalp. Um, and then he transforms into different forms, and I found Q a very fascinating villain after that. The problem is when he's talking like a Magellan motherfucker. Uh, I just, yeah, I just really wanted. Oh to... yeah, that beginning stuff is he. He drops that pretty quickly. I, I was like, just, oh, oh no, is he gonna talk like this the whole episode? Similar to uh, not Fontaine. What's the character? Uh, Trelane. Trelane. Uh, Trelane, which I like Trelane. <clears throat> but Trelane is more of like this developed kind of like Vincent Pricey Corman era like uh, yeah. version of uh, of a villain. Uh, Q was like very specifically trying to don these different accents. Um, the character's really cool. I don't know if I like the performance very much, but uh, yeah, but it's, it's a also little it's a little broad, but it, I, it, it's an incredibly hard thing to nail. I'll I'll give the actor credit for that because it's it's essentially you need to do all these different accents, but you need to also yeah. communicate the fact that you are su- a superior being in a sort of yeah. smug way through all these accents. Yeah. Like that's a hard ask, but I don't think that the actor ever nails any particular iteration of q in a way that i found um actually that's not true i really like q as the uh creepy uh, post-apocalyptic warlord uh i think i thought you'd like that i thought you'd like the, in, the in kind the of you into like uh, mid 21st century like where they kill all the lawyers and all, everyone's taking drugs and it's just like this really barbaric society i fucking love that i actually love like, you as a concept i i love and that's another thing that happens in the show is like even if i think like the dialogue is a little clunky which actually the show avoids a lot of that by keeping the dialogue somewhat grounded uh, again a misconception or uh, a prejudice a preconception i had about the show whatever term you want to yeah. use uh was that it would be full of a space gobbledygook uh and it's largely free of that it's focused on uh communicating drama um yep. and one thing i loved is is uh, that 21st century conflict sequence because it's immediately it's a little melodramatic yes but it immediately gets to like the heart of what the issue is and that's what i like and also I think like things two- are gonna get worse before they get better in this timeline which is why i fell in love with twilight yeah. zone when i was a teenager um yeah which is oh yeah because we have con and whatever this 21st century like junkie soldier bullshit is to yeah which about. actually is like this is really nerdy but this is supposed to be like uh the two times because either like um well we're supposed to have this and q's like no actually this is this the timelines for that are like the 2050s and then the 2070s so we're fucked twice uh, basically things get bad for a long time yeah con is like 1996 1998 um things get um and actually one of the movies well we'll get there anyways um yeah i thought you'd like that quite a bit i I will say so q's performance feel of that sequence the 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 kangaroo court sequence like and how creepy it felt and the way i also just i'm a sucker for any time that uh, they prove that villains are so evil by having them kill one of their own um yeah. i'm a sucker for that because the the level of brutality to have an a, a oppressor uh kill another oppressor um it, it, it fucking works there's a reason that the bond movies still do it yeah uh i thought you'd like that scene i think you are going to end up really liking q he ends up having a level of consistency which is a weird fascination with picard and uh to picard's great uh, legitimate annoyance 
Um, and, uh, but his, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we'll get more Q. I agree this and then another episode in the first season that he shows up in are not his best moments. They figure him out, I think, pretty quickly after this and what's interesting. And uh, John DeLancey, who plays Q, is uh, so amazing as a antagonist in Star Trek. Different than a lot that we've ever seen before. So I think by the end of this, you'll come around on that performance. And uh, just like a lot, um, you you saw one example. Uh, everyone's performances get a little bit better <laughs> as the show goes on. But I will say one speak- thing uh, yeah. as somebody who, uh, you know, is I'm not technically a beard sexual, but, uh, you know, it does work for me. Uh, Jonathan Frakes is never sexier than uh, he is in, in this episode. He is such a little Yeah, I know. He's such a little cutie pants. Yeah, and he's got little pants. They all do. He's got he, he's uh. little cutie pants. And also the fact that he is weirdly enough a Kirk replacement, not Picard. Because Picard is that, yeah, very different point. from yeah. Kirk in, in certain ways. Like he's still a great Very leader, conscious. But he's not yeah. the smug, sort of like uh, you know, smarmy, kind of a little bit Han Solo, but also a little bit like, you know, pragmatic, smart leader, kind of, you know, dashing Sherlock Holmes kind of character where he's like, he just came up with an amazing machination at the last second. Um, he's, uh, that's, that, that, that's Riker. Riker is the sort of, um, he's not smug, but he's, he's got that bit of that smarmy, sexy quality, whereas Picard yeah. is for someone who's sexually pursued quite a bit in a measure of a man um picard is, oh and a lot of episodes yeah. like well yeah. like picard fu- they all fuck yeah i'm you not to see some more fucking yeah but they're all gonna fuck but in a more yeah. traditional sexy level the chris pine if you will sexy level yeah. um uh, riker has it right Ry- riker is this like sharp ass jawline and he's got these beautiful cutting eyes and like yeah. uh he's got this like sort of like debonair smile like Riker is hot which is something that like similar to Shatner being hot in the original show um really uh took my uh, took my uh, genitals for surprise yeah no i forgot how hot babyface Riker is and even the beard in the second season is like he's still hot whole, like dynamic- i'm not saying he drops off a cliff don't get me wrong yeah but it's it's a it's pretty hot speaking of second season he does grow the beard but he's still got the hairstyle and the cot like there's a there's a i think the bigger transformation is actually between seasons two and three mostly because they change the costumes and they they change some hairstyles the lighting gets a little different like, yeah anyways season two we're let's get into the only season two episode i'm showing you can we talk about cons- can we talk about something really quickly before we move on to season two um really quick really quick um two things actually um so uh the, the jellyfish thing looks really great just wanted to note that that's a really cool special effect uh, another thing: Are the Frankie the new Klingons now, or is no, that more the Romulans? No, so so it's gonna be, so the Romulans don't show up to the end of this season. It's actually a, like the big ending of season one is that no one's seen a Romulan in fifty or sixty years. I hadn't seen one um, until you know Mind's Eye. So yeah, and that um, that they basically after the Klingon after the Kittimer stuff in Star Trek Six. Even though that this episode, this episode is not calling to that directly, they eventually are like, "Oh fuck, Klingons and, um, and the Federation, we 
we're not a part of this table anymore. And they kind of like close off their borders and no one really talks to them until this episode at the end of this season where they kind of dramatically announce like, we're going to pay more attention to what's going on in the alpha quadrant. Like we're back. Okay, cool. Like, um, so they are the, the antagonists. Ferengi were set, were supposed to be, but they ended up becoming very goofy, very quickly. Um, they're kind of offensive. Um, they're supposed to be like a, a, Jewish dash Middle Eastern stereotype, right? Yeah, and like super misogynistic. Like, why do your females wear clothes? And Deep Space Nine actually does a lot to kind of fix the Ferengi as a concept. But at the end of the day, they weren't really imposing. They're like these goofy, um, like people that just want gold, and it didn't really fit. <laughs> oh wait, That's hold what on. What, what race are they trying to racially stereotype? There? I don't know. They're they're short. They have very, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's also funny that like Star Wars was never about space tolerance, but Star Trek was Star Wars. I know like they're, they look, there's still progressive shows still lean into some bad stereotypes. Uh, yeah. So Ferengi actually don't show up all that often. I don't know if I've plotted out a Ferengi. The Ferengi episodes in next gen are not that great. Um, we don't need to, as long as we get a Jeffrey Combs episode in there, I'm happy. Again, Jeff. We'll get Jeffrey Combs on Deep Space Nine all over the place. Uh, but Quark and in Deep Space Nine is a regular as a Ferengi. Uh, really kind of saves the Ferengi. Um, and then they do a lot more actual Ferengi stuff. That's not just like they like golden women and don't like when women wear clothes. Yeah. Um, so a couple- and then okay, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So the 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 only thing I noticed about the special effects in the show, and this sort of leans us towards. Actually, let me delete that thought. The other thing I wanted to note was um, the the Ferengi get a mention, and then also they they establish in the lore that Doc is still alive because he makes a cameo. Oh, I almost forgot. How could I forget? He's he's uh, one of the big surprise. Seven years old. Hold, and hold on. Miserable. One of the big. One of the big surprises. Well, obviously, this was before shot, even before the final frontier. So he's in heavy makeup. I wanted to note that, like DeForest Kelly is much younger than 137. Um, but I did want to say when you were talking on, um, I forget Star Trek Six. You're like, I'm, I'm really sad. I'm not going to see McCoy again. I was like, I didn't want to ruin the surprise for you, Peter, but I appreciate I that. was happy to note that you got to, were you kind of like, once you, f- they don't say, hey, McCoy in town, woo woo, like, the, and they actually made it very big secret on the set and stuff like that. Once you kind of realized it was McCoy, were you kind of, that made you a little happy? It made me a little happy, though, um, he is 137 years old. And is just a miserable old space racist. Like he's on, uh, he's on camera for like three minutes, and he tells Data he hates him, and then he, uh, no, he doesn't. And he's he, like, oh, and then he relinquishes. He also rehashes his hatred for the Vulcans. Um, again, I think it's as supposed to be Matt Wink, who's, who's okay with space yeah. racism, but not yeah, we know. actual racism. Uh. I, I, I'm a fan of bitter old man McCoy because, like, that's where we were going, right? The dude that just liked to drink in his bunk and never quite found a way to make peace with the fact that, like, <laughs> certain races uh, in space just gave them a lot of guts. Look, he just—it's a—it's a nod to to Spock. It's not like he's out there going, you know, 
Things do change. It's a nice ship. You know, in my ship, we had two drinking fountains, and everyone seemed fine with it. Like, <laughs> he's not that kind of space. No. The, one for Vulcans, one for... The green bud lines are ultimately just uh, a way that they were communicating the, the sort of, like, antagonistic love, and they do love each other. But it's way more funny for me to picture him as some sort of Gran Torino character. Yeah. What the fuck is this? An android? <laughs> Not my federation. Uh, anyways. Uh, I have, so, I hey, have one more question. Before. Or one more comment. Or yes. sorry, two more comments. Um, uh, Picard says uh, a line. He says, we're going to be damned. Let's be damned for what we really are. Which I think yeah. is the great, fastest great that a TV character has ever established who they are. In a way that made me like, I need to figure out who the fuck you are. So it's establishing that he's a man of honor. He's a man of dignity. But he's also a bit of a, he has that bit of daring energy where he's like, you know, the boldly going, you know, kind of. Kind and of- also he has an eight sense of like stopping injustice. And yeah. that is going to be a theme. Like when, when Picard gets upset, it is usually because some injustice is occurring he is a true like humanitarian um and humanist or a you know speciesist intelligent lifeist and um and it helps that like they got an actor who was just amazing like they they really did luck out i know now it seems like well of course patrick stewart but in the same way they lucked out with kirk is like this uh impossibly cool sexy captain that people wanted to watch on tv the fact that they got an actor of the caliber of Patrick Stewart, like, like you, you notice that like when you're in the Klingon scenes, like Michael Dorn is good at Worf on a certain speed, but once he's asked to be like, be angry about something injustice, he just Michael Dorn is, you know, it just can't really pull off that range. It's not a shot at Michael Dorn. He just Michael Dorn was hired because he was supposed to be the reasonable Klingon, and so when he's supposed yeah. to be a, a ravenous Klingon, I'm a Klingon. That, yeah, and it also leaning into where we're going, like that that makes sense because Michael Dorn is yeah. never fully um, comfortable in the Klingon world or in the human yeah. world. It's just he's a little bit more co- comfortable in the Starfleet world where he gets to express his opinion, his his bit of Klingon like id level anger and then he gets to fall back on his like more more controlled sense but continue yeah but like the fact that like patrick stewart um can deliver those lines of passion with such ease like you notice that especially when everyone's a little off in their character and counter at far point he's just immediately like when he's confronted by q like you call it like it nothing seems off nothing seems out of place everything seems like compelling it he just seems impossibly naturalistic at embodying this character so almost quickly. immediately and it's it it's that is what like you know even though Riker was my boy when I liked it, I had friends that really liked Data and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, they do a lot with a lot of the characters. A lot of the characters are mostly well-served, of course. Just uh, the female characters do get the short shrift, just like, unfortunately, um, most uh, most television, movies, entertainment stuff. Um, but, but uh, yeah, like, it's, it, it's something I took for granted watching this. Like, I didn't, I didn't when I was, you know, neither. 11 or 12, I wasn't like... Oh, oh, Patrick's like, this is a great actor I'm watching. It was like, yeah, he's playing his part. So, um, but you, you notice it immediately compared to everyone else. Like, oh, he's nailing it. He gets it. He, you could give him anything and he'd make it seem real. Um, and then, uh, this is the first episode. This is characters kind of settling into their arc. We talked about Picard kind of, um, 
uh, feeling out who his character is. Jonathan Frakes feeling out who his character is and how he relates to Picard. It sort of forms a mini arc of them being antagonistic and then later not so much. Um, you know, later as in, uh, that sounds like right after this. Um, <laughs> Basically, the, yeah. <laughs> I have to say that there's a pretty good analogy here for what a, a pilot episode is to the full series. And it's yeah. the way Worf talks with his um, mouthpiece. Um, so, oh yeah so Worf talks uh as somebody who got braces in adulthood because i have a fucking baby tooth that i got removed and then all of a sudden i had a gap in my mouth that i had to get fixed um i got i got braces in my mid-20s um and for like a year and it was very embarrassing it ta- it affected the way i spoke for a while i was very self-conscious about it um and eventually it was fine uh, now I got great teeth. Everything's great. But at first I had, I may had these little weird spittle kind of sounds and I'm very, still very aware of what it sounds like. Um, and fucking, uh, poor Michael Torn, uh, has the, that effect with the mouthpiece where he's trying to use, he has this deep, wonderful, like baritone voice that, that imparts so much like wisdom and him sort of like, I'm a Klingon, but like I'm not the the angry barking Klingon that you know. Um, and he's giving that voice in the later episodes, but in this episode, when he gives it, it's it's inherently um, hampered by the fact that he's getting used to the mouthpiece, which is so interesting. That he's wearing all that crazy makeup; his eyes are still beaming through it, but like. Uh, the fact that his intonation is changing is fucking with him just a little bit. And by the time we get to later episodes, he's either the, either the SFX team has figured out like a better glue or some shit, um, or he's just figured out a way to work around it the way that like, I don't know, I did with my braces. And it's a, I think it's a pretty good metaphor for where the show is heading because all the characters figure out their parts pretty damn quickly. And Michael Doran settles into who Worf is and who we're going to be talking about a lot tonight. Uh, we are, uh, very much. So, yeah, yeah. You want to talk about Let's move into the one episode yeah. of the second season with The Measure of a Man. Um, so, Measure, Measure of a Man, uh, interesting episode. So, it, it, it kicks off with a poker game. And that's a really interesting way to establish uh, who all these characters are in a way that the pilot doesn't. And I like that the show makes time for these small character moments. And they will throughout the series. They, um, Including in uh, The Emissary, I believe, also has a poker scene. They're gonna they're gonna do uh, probably about twenty or twenty so episodes, maybe a little bit more that start with poker games. It's a great way, again, to see the characters interacting um, outside of uh, yeah, like you said, build some character stuff like that. How do people react um, when, when there's not you know uh, torpedoes on the line? Exactly, um, and and the fact that like the bridge crew in general is becoming friends. Like they're getting to know each other. They're becoming friends. That becomes more and more apparent as the poker games go on. One interesting note, important thing to note, Picard never joins a poker game. He still, even as he becomes more friendly, uh, understands there's a separation between him and even his fellow senior officers. So yeah, this is really quickly. I admire in certain members of my company um, at certain holiday parties. Like even if uh, they'll, uh, you know, and, and, and at my uh, wife's company at certain holiday parties, even if they're having fun, like they will determine a time, uh, you know, shortly after the meal where they're like, and I'm gone. 
Like this is yeah. You're, you're, you don't not going to the after party. Around. Like you, you all need to bond together. That's more important than me. You seeing your boss drunk. And also, Picard talks about later on. Like he also understands that part of his job is to decide when to send people to their death, and something that haunts him in his. Not the first time he's been a captain. Not the first time he's you know. As we found out in the pilot, he actually. Uh, well, maybe we don't find this on the pilot that he sent Jack Crusher to his death. Um, I think we do. I think that's part of the reason he's so conflicted about the Crusher family being on board. It's not just that he dislikes yeah. kids. It's, it's that he has like a specific like, uh, you know, this is going to fuck with my my ability to command is, is having to see yep. the, the, the survivors next of kin. So one thing uh, that the movies end up doing is the show doesn't have main characters, but the movies do. It is Picard and Data for all four movies. Um, uh, and uh, this is, you know, Data was the new Spock, uh, someone who a ton of people in the same way that they uh, crowd around Spock really like Data. I always liked Data. He was, ne- he was not in my top three of Star Trek crew members, um, uh, Next Gen, but still liked him quite a bit. And this was an episode that I watched early on. It has way more meaning to me as an adult. At the time, I just knew it was an important episode. But it's essentially uh, not to spend a long time on the plot. It's uh, Data's... Uh, trial for his uh, autonomy that he's not just a machine like the Enterprise um, that he has he can't just be ordered to 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 say um, give himself up to science because he's an android and he's a machine that he has sentience and that um, as Picard says we we're looking for new life forms there's one right there like we um, including a somewhat villain who just sees him as a machine refers to him as it and what I love about it is he's not the villain. He, he he's not he just really sees him like where he's like i like data data's great i yeah. want to make a thousand datas yeah in the same way i'm an engine like you know i'm i i think he's an amazing feat of engineering but he's not a person like someone made him and then he has a trial to kind of prove his where picard is his defender and unfortunately Riker has to be his prosecutor um because they're the two most senior office officers to prove his humanity um, so this is an episode that, uh, watching this time made me cry Picard's speech at the end. I was very surprised by that. Again, I, I did too. I liked it and as a I kid. barely knew the characters and I still cried at the end. Yeah. It's your second episode ever. It, and that is because like, there's a reason that this is held in such high regard and usually considered like the best episode of the first two seasons and that it really is taking like, here's this person. Now we've, you know, this is midway through the second season. You've seen him on 35 episodes. Is he just like the starship that you've come to love? Or is he a member of the crew uh, in the same way that Picard and um, Riker and everyone else is? And you also see, even though, so we'll get into this in the next set of episodes, but Data doesn't have emotions. Um, There's an emotion chip that he doesn't have. So he's sort of a Um, riff on Spock in a sense. But also, the fact that he's a robot is becoming specifically important on, or, you know, an android is specifically important in this episode. Like, it's not just, uh, you know, an approximation of what a Klingon is. Uh, Excuse me. It's not an approximation of what a Vulcan is. It's uh, this is them actually delving into what the difference is. And his personal journey is to go beyond his programming. And one thing I always liked about Andrew uh, about data is that even though he doesn't have like emotions, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't like feel laughter or joy in the same sense. He that doesn't mean that he doesn't have wants and he doesn't have things that are good or like an opinion on the situation. He just doesn't feel emotions in the same way that we do. So like. 
he, he it wouldn't be safe to say that he's sad or angry that he is not allowed to resign and is like, no, sorry, like you you can't get out of this. He is like, I want to continue to exist as I am. I don't want this to happen to me. Um, and that's very important for who Data is as a whole. And yeah, I, I love I love this episode. I love the way that Maddox, the commander, who at the end, after hearing Picard make him say, hey, what is conscious? What is um, someone who deserves the rights that the Federation has? And he like spouts off three things and kind of proves them all wrong. And again, the we talked about this on the, one of the first Star Trek episodes we do. I like that for in general, this isn't always true. There's bad guy characters, but the ideal of Star Trek is that you're right. Maddox isn't a per, uh, villain. And once he kind of sees that maybe he's wrong, he has the ability to open up to that and say, you know what? Maybe he is, he is uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, entity. And the, the judge is like, he you called him he yeah i guess i did like that like unlike real life the people who are wrong have the ability to grow and learn because ultimately they're not um conniving villains who have um ulterior motives um yeah i like the idea that i mean that's basically the, the the core ethos of the show expanded outward uh it's humanist or you know personist i guess if you're gonna uh, expanded out to be less uh, species focused um it's it, it's a humanist uh sort of view there's it's not really about heroes and villains it's about it is it is ultimately about um the the inner dignity of all living things and yep. uh the and this episode is entirely about like um it, how much data matters and how data is not something that's easily replicatable and how data talks about there's ineffable qualities of memory that uh it's not just about how um because he's such an advanced ai it's not just about how you know what data he's got in his skull it's about how those data points connect and create a person and, uh, and the, the show is having the conversation that tons of sci-fi has had but it's having it with a less um, cynical cyberpunk sort of uh, approach. It's having it in an approach that's uh, focused on the the inner humanity, um, which I think a lot of these these um, even uh, you know Blade Runner and such like that are really focused on that. Like I think at times they they just find little almost like uh, novelties or trinkets in in the inner humanity of what an AI is or what an android is. Instead of focusing on like the fact that like we're um, yes, we're ultimately not that different from them. But like what what are the key differences and what do those key differences tell us about ourselves? Um, and, and and on that same point, making it a let's keep the family together episodes um, yeah. is is really heartwarming. Like I don't want Dana to go away. And after losing Tasha Yar, it's like who i really liked in the first episode um i forgot when i told you about the tasha yar and them uh fucking i forgot that it actually comes up in this episode uh um, yes they're that so they were probably good for involved. you to know that yeah so that <laughs> yeah. that actually made that have more resonance because i wasn't that attached to, to tasha yar i mean she was cool but like i mean i watched lots of lots of movies where people are cool and then die um 
But uh, the the fact that Data, who's someone who I was getting very attached to, was attached to her makes her imp- more important. Um, and uh, th- that's not, you know, saying anything about her. You know, <laughs> if, if I had more time with Tashiar, she would matter more to me. Um, it's just that I got very little exposure to her before she died. Just natural part of uh, cutting these these shows down. Um, well, and then, uh, yeah, well, actually, so we're not going to do these in order because I think we're going to do Klingon as a full. Just we're going to talk about those episodes and list them once again. But let's move on to the next one that I would have specifically picked just to let you know what Star Trek Next Generation is like. And that's Yesterday's Enterprise. Yesterday's Enterprise is a third season episode. I, I think... It's just a truly great episode that kind of takes time travel as, uh, like, unlike most movies or television shows or uh, depictions that I've ever seen, it's more of a Sound of Thunder thing where, hey, the second the thing changes, it has immediate effects on the time that we have. So essentially, the Enterprise C, which had died, or had died, why do I keep calling these starships dying? Which had uh, got destroyed at this battle that... um. The Romulans were attacking a Klingon outpost. The Enterprise C intervened. It got destroyed. That um, that act took the Klingons from people that had a peace treaty that we saw in Star Trek VI to true allies, where they are part of the part of the Federation alliance, um, even if they are still their own distinct uh, empire. That that act happened. What happens here? There's a time. There's a temporal uh, disturbance. Enterprise C comes to meet where the Enterprise D, and that causes the Klingon um, situation to go from about to become allies to devolving into a war that's going very badly for the Federation. So some immediate changes when the ship comes through. Notably, uh, it's now a ship of war. Uh, the 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 whole lighting changes the 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 shape of the ship changes uh, or the the way that the interior is designed uh, changes. Um, we see ten forward and Guinan. Uh, we'll get to Guinan here in a second because uh, you did get a few episodes with her, which is great. Um, she becomes a very popular recurring character and is in Star Trek Generations. Um, She's also helpful to draw a comparison in the previous episode to slavery and how if you take uh, creatures with sentience as, uh, you know, a fellow humans, fellow persons, as, uh, as, uh, you know, if you take convenience over personhood, um, you are robbing someone of something that they they inherently deserve. And so... You're not going to get this because I don't know if we're going to go into this episode. That's not to like season five or season six. But essentially, Guinan's thing is that her and Picard have a relationship that's more than friends, more than lovers, that um, never really gets talked about much, but that they trust each other implicitly because of a, a something we'll eventually see depicted on the show that actually doesn't live up to the what the fuck happened with these two. Um, and that Elorians, so the race that she is, is um, an Elorian or the species she is, sorry. They live hundreds and hundreds of years, and they have – they're not psychics, but they have perception beyond the third dimension and can sense certain things that are science-based but still have the, you know, idea of, like, magic powers. But um, but they're not, like – they just they just know things about how time works that our species and, alter, and mul- the multiverse and stuff like that that our species doesn't quite – grasp anyways she immediately realizes something has changed and that she can put some of it into words but doesn't know the specifics um tasha yar is there because Worf obviously wouldn't be uh wouldn't be in the federation wouldn't be in starfleet if their klingons are at war um and uh 
the the episode is them kind of meeting the crew of the Enterprise C and like, should we use them? We need all the ships. We're losing this war with the Klingons. It shows some nice different turns. Like, I love how Riker and Picard are like, what if their relationship from the first episode that we saw was never warmed? And instead, uh, be kind of became two people that are serving their posts, but don't really like each other all that much or don't really understand or trust each other all that much. Um, and Tasha Yar eventually is told by Guinan that, hey, just to let you know, you're not supposed to be here. You died. It's kind of a meaningless death. Uh, Picard is eventually convinced by Guinan to send the ship back in uh, one of my favorite scenes, probably in the whole series, um, where he's like, not good enough, damn it. Not good enough. Um, he's so good at that shit. Anyway, they send uh, the Enterprise C back with Tasha Yar. Because she asked the captain, hey, if, you know, if I die a meaningless death, maybe I can go back and do some good. Uh, and then in a very, like, track, like, heady concept, the ship goes back, everything shifts back, and the crew knows nothing about what the whole episode that we just saw. So what did you think of this one? Uh, I really liked it, though, um, obviously not being connected to Tasha Yar, uh gave it a sort of um dramatic cost there was a cost to the drama i should say um i love the i love the way though that they um they play with time in such a way that makes the crew helpless i i don't yeah i don't actually like time travel shows about or time time travel movies that are ultimately about people uh gaming time travel um, I mean, I like Back to the Future and such, but that's like, you know, a cartoony kind of adventure. But like, I don't like when movies are about like, <laughs> we over, we, we outsmarted time because it, to me, it feels like, uh, maybe it's my, my love for Lovecraftian stuff, but to me, it feels like, um, silly to, uh, it often feels silly to me to, uh, for people to make these actions, uh, and pretend like they're in a vacuum. And like their only their immediate goals in front of their face matter, uh, and I yeah. love Guinan's uh, just complete like I can't give you a hundred percent answer. I can't give you a hundred percent certainty. I can't give you a scientific report on why we need to do this. But when I tell you I have this feeling, and you know you trust me as a member of your crew, and this is my responsibility to look a little bit foolish right now, I think you need to trust me. Interpret this and decide if it's worth changing all of history for this and I, and they do very interesting things here like Riker gets a gnarly death I, I ultimately this episode what it taught me is many shows need to reset the status quo every episode you were just talking about mm -hmm. a specific writer that insisted on it Star Trek is a show that's very often about uh about uh, insisting the status quo continue or you know we are the status quo is a progressive understanding of all species um therefore we should constantly pursue that but this episode it's like we can't we can't violate this feeling that like this this off we can't shake this feeling that something awful has happened so let's set things right and just ride that out because we are just small people compared to the the enormity of time, the enormity of, of existence. Yeah, and it does do that thing that a lot of writers and a lot of shows talk about is like, 
you know, I want to blow up the ship. I want to kill these characters. Um, so it does serve that, I'm sure, from the writers. But I also think the reason this episode is so successful is uh, the writing and the dialogue is so goddamn good. I mentioned the Picard stuff in here. But also, I mean, there's – if you see any supercut of Star Trek, Peter, there's a good chance you're going to see – the line near the end where he's like delivered in such an amazing like it's a line that almost reads lame on paper but that is patrick stewart's magic where he's like let's make sure history never forgets the name enterprise <laughs> like it's so good yeah i, I love it so much and, uh what's also interesting is like <laughs> they only changed one part of the cast really tasha yar yeah the rest of the cast is pretty much there so like they could have done a lot more scrambling, but instead they like, we want you to focus on Tasha so that when this final sort of sacrificial moment or making things right moment, whatever context you want to view it in, um, when that final moment happens, it has an emotional impact. And it did, despite the fact that I had, you know, less connection to the character than before, but it was because I had this whole episode to get, get finally get attached to her and figure out what her shit was and see her fall in love. And this other character yeah. fall in love with her. And like that sort of, um, that, that sort of taking time to make the sacrifice matter is what Star Trek's really good at. And Denise Crosby is a really good actor. Uh, Shooter McGavin's a really good actor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We didn't, we didn't mention that Shooter McGavin's in it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that sense of community is what this show is, is ultimately about and finding the right home for each crew member is part of Picard's job and, and episodes that are focused on that really, really sing. Agreed. And this is actually the best, like Tasha Yar has ever really served. She wasn't served well in the first season. So to have that kind of like moment of, uh, you know, being able to be a little bit of a hero and having some good dialogue and some good emotional scenes to play, um, is uh is 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 well well deserved um i also love the little wharf thing at the beginning where um Guinan's trying to get wharf to loosen up and then she suggests to have him have prune juice and it's uh prune juice a warrior's drink <laughs> also for the rest of, but that's the way that continuity actually works really well for star trek so for the rest of the show he's constantly ordering prune juice from the replicators like they they there's not so much continuity of plot but the characters do evolve and change and things that happen in a show big or little do affect them like it and that's one thing i did always really appreciate about the show it wasn't all, it wasn't a hard reset the story might be over but the characters didn't um revert back to their pre uh, pre-episode uh, ways um, they're affected by them and we're going to get into that way more uh, late not on this episode but later on so the last one we'll talk about before we get into the whole Klingon Civil War arc which is important uh, a couple good episodes in there but also sets up um, some things in Generations which you'll find out more next episode is Darmok so Darmok is Darmok is not necessarily an episode that I would go uh, is in my top 20 or even top 25 but again, if you look at the list and the consensus, like Measure of Man, like Yesterday's Enterprise, it's going to be on there. And it felt like as I was looking for intro episodes, what's a good one to do? And I, I really do like Darmok. Um, if, and I think it does hit um, a cool Star Trek thing, which is the commitment that Picard has to try to understand who these people are, but also really kind of tackle something that is actually the true bane of most explorers, which is how do you communicate with who you discover? 
and who you, how you how you form these relationships. Star Trek has a cheat for that in that everyone has universal translators that can be mostly understood. And here's one where it's not a question of the universal translators not working or like they only speak in binary or some other shit that the computer can't translate into like words. It can understand the words, but it's a it's a species that speaks in in that understands the world in a totally abstract way that they can't wrap their head around and so it kind of deals with a huge part of exploring and meeting other species that star trek gets to go around while being a very compelling episode for picard uh and having a little mystery in there too that they basically he meets the ship they're very powerful they keep trying to communicate they can't do it and so the captain of this ship beams him and picard down to like we're gonna figure this shit out the two of us together at the protest having of his, to, co- his you know his first or whatever yep yep at the protest of everyone really. yeah. yeah um and this is how important it is for me for us to explore he's an explorer too and picard's i love you'll get to know this more about picard but like he nerds out about exploring and archaeology and the way the species evolve and it's like a huge part of his character and this is him kind of respecting that there's there's things to be discovered here to the point that when he's almost saved from death he's yelling for them to send him back but eventually yeah he does he does uh, meet this captain they can't understand each other because he's saying stuff like shaka when the walls fall and darmok and Tanil at tanak and and because he's relating a story that gives a feeling because they don't speak in literalism um in the way that we do and um by the time he figures it out, this alien that they're fighting together to force them to build a bond that the captain knew about dies. Uh, Picard finally gets rescued in time to come and save um, save the, the ship from getting destroyed because Riker's been trying to figure out how to save him, including attacking the uh, the other the other ship. And he but he recognizes the cost and makes him reflect on that this person was willing to give their life to establish uh, a relationship with another another species, another race. Um, and I love whenever Star Trek like pauses. He didn't save the day and he cuts to credits. You walk into his ready room, he's reading his book, and he's understanding the magnitude of the sacrifice that was presented to him just so that they could say hi to each other. Um, so yeah, extremely compelling Star Trek episode and really one that like fits in with that. What is What is a platonica idea of a star trek episode which is people learning to understand each other and everyone having generally good intentions so what do you think about darmok uh darmok's a good episode i mean it does it it, 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 it there's an asterisk here that like i uh you know i wish that these shows had a bigger budget so that they could have less humanoid enemies um not enemies less humanoid species in the mix like what if darmok was like a fucking jellyfish thing like in mass effect um but uh great news peter there's a canon reason why they all look alike that happens in season six well i'm I'm excited to get there um but yeah so uh basically uh dharma the dharmic episode is is fascinating because it took me to places that the first season did uh or excuse me that the original series did which is like I am off on my own sort of mental adventure while all of this is happening and thinking about like, not so much what the episode is doing wrong, um, but thinking about like, shit, like what are the implications of us communicating with a species that doesn't even think about uh, language in the way that we do, that they think about it as uh, references to old myths. Um, 
And then the one thing that kept I kept getting snagged on was, well, how did they explain the original myths? How did they first communicate the myths? Did they do a light, laser light show? Uh, how do they communicate new myths to people, to children? Um, but yeah, the other, like all that, all of that. Is I think they actually do. Ex- I actually think they do explain it when he's like, tell me a myth, because that's just the way it's not that they, they can't create new myths. It's that they just don't speak in literal. So like someone explaining a story or them living another story, like that communicates thoughts and feelings. We're, me and you and Picard are still hearing it as a story being told, but they actually interpret it like they don't interpret it as that. Oh, remember that story. It gives them a different understanding. Oh, because they Picard just think is, differently. is sharing um, Gilgamesh, the Gilgamesh myth. Um, yeah. And in before uh, the guy dies. And it, it's a, it's a really cool episode because I didn't know what was happening. And I was in Picard's shoes. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like. Oh, I was catching on when Picard was like that. I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I like mysteries that unfold that way, where like you're about at the same level uh, as yeah. the as the the hero is, which is a it's it's a hard thing to pull off. Uh, I think usually you're either very far ahead of the plot or very far behind, yeah. and in this particular case, I was like right where Picard was. Yeah, and a great like Trekkie concept of like, hey. Even you, the audience members, aren't going to fully understand it because your brain thinks in literal, and theirs doesn't. Yeah. Like they're just, and and yeah, a uh, good episode. Uh, I think definitely a good introduction to a lot of who Picard is. Again, I think there's there's episodes that there's episodes that I think even do a better job of some of this stuff, Peter. But I also like let's give you some agreed upon good episodes or great episodes. But not really like. Do I show you the twenty best episodes of Star Trek in a row, and you think, "Oh, these are these." Yeah, these. Now you're comparing levels of greatness, and so some uh, seem better than the others. Like I wanted to save some of the really, really like holy shit ones until you had a better sense of the characters and some other stuff as well. But I, I think, I think as an intro to the series, you can't do much better than Measure of a Man, Yesterday's Enterprise, and Darmok for like here's some stuff. This is the show you're going to get into. Um, so the other part that it's not that I, I probably wouldn't have shown you these as an intro, even though I do really like most of them as episodes is this Klingon civil war arc that spans from emissary to, uh, through, um, sins of the father to reunion mind's eye and redemptions part one and two. I'm not going to go through each episode specifically, but really, uh, uh, it starts with Worf and this uh, Kalar uh, person who's half Klingon, half human. I really love the performance of her by uh, Susie Plaskin. Um, she and yeah, she and Worf um, have a previous relationship. They end up fucking, and Worf's like, "Okay, time to take the vows." And she's like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Um, she's, so they she's leave. More her human half is is uh, saying to her like, uh, "I don't actually need to." to to betroth myself to you like we can we can be paired uh in a more informal manner i'm not pairing myself to you in this klingon the super aggressive klingon manner yeah and and she's kind of embraced the fact that she's half human and half klingon and there's things that she likes about her klingon half and things she doesn't like and vice versa for her human half where Worf, we find out a lot about him through this we're eventually going to um, meet his foster parents and and stuff like that. But he was uh, as a child. He was uh, his father died at the the massacre massacre at Kittimer, and um, 
and uh, he was raised by two uh, Russian parents, actually, on Earth. Um, and so he was a full-blooded Klingon that wanted to learn about Klingon with people that weren't the best teachers um, and ultimately went to Starfleet. So he's always had this like removal from uh, the Klingon culture while not wanting to be considered human. He's like, I am a Klingon. But he's always had a separation between him and other Klingons. So he he kind of does sometimes these things that are expected of Klingons, even if he doesn't necessarily feel that way, because he is constantly trying to be a real Klingon in every capacity. So his proposal based on Klingon traditions is less about, as, as Kalar eventually gets him to admit in Reunion, less about um, him thinking that's the best move for them at that moment, but like his his never-ending quest to like, be a true Klingon and be seen as a true Klingon. That hits a snag in Sins of the Father, where he is, uh, his father's being accused of treason with the Romulans at this Kittimer uh, thing. And and you find out that the Kai Council was like, well, Worf's in Starfleet, it doesn't matter. Let's pin it on Worf's father, Moog, and his family. It's actually this other guy, Duras, but he's a he's a big guy in, in the Klingon High Council and the and the world. It would be a huge deal if Duras decides, "Fuck you guys, I'm not going to be a part of this." He has too many allies, so they thought they could heap it on Worf. Worf defends his name with Picard's help and insistence, but also learns that you're right. It would just it could plunge the could plunge uh, the Quonos, uh, the Klingon homeworld, into civil war over over this if Duras were to be uh, to have his back to a corner. In Reunion, Kimpak, the leader of the High Council, is poisoned and killed. There's two challengers. One's Duras. One is Galron. Also, Kalar shows up and says, oh, yeah, we have a son. Um, through this, it's find out that Duras is the one who poisoned Kimpak, Worf. Uh, but also when Kalar figures this out, because uh, the whole thing is secret with Worf being fake, uh, shunned. And throughout this stretch, anytime a Klingon comes on board, uh, even in these episodes, another one, he's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> that guy sucks. Um, he is not. He's a traitor. His whole family's a traitor. There's no honor there, which is like the worst thing for Worf, because all he wants is to be Klingon. And now Klingons are going out of their way to telling Omaha what a shitty Klingon he is. And they won't even be in want to be in the same room with them. Uh, which I do like how Picard's always like, well, he's my head of security. I'm going to get him in there whenever I can just to be an asshole. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, so uh, Duras kills Kalar, Worf kills uh, Duras, and Gauron uh, is uh, going to become the head of the High Council. We find out in Mind's Eye, which is setting up a little bit of the finale, that uh, there are um, the Romulans and the uh, are working with the Klingons in some capacity to help ferment a civil war. And that gets brought up in the Redemption uh, season four finale and season five premiere, where the Duras sisters, Duras had two sisters, Lurs and Beatar, they found Torell, who is Duras's son that they confirm, who has a challenge to the throne before Gauron is able to actually complete the rite of succession administered by Picard. Um, as predicted, once uh, Picard says, nope, sorry, this kid can't be the head of the Klingon High Council right now. Leads to civil war. Uh, Worf's uh, brother, Kern, who has kind of hidden the fact that he's Worf's brother because he doesn't want to accept the dishonor. Well, Worf doesn't want him to accept the dishonor. Uh, he persuades to back Gowron in this fight for uh, Lursen Beatar, or Beatar, um, the civil war that happens. Uh, Picard is like, great, you've, you've, uh, Gowron finally, oh, sorry, Gowron finally says, hey, Worf, you're on my side, Kern's on my side. 
you guys are free. We're going to say Duras was always the family, was always the traitor. Uh, Picard's like, great, we accomplished what you wanted, Worf. And Worf's like, okay, I'm going to go fight the Civil War. And Picard, being kind of the strict, I follow the guidelines even if I have a sense of justice or injustice, says, it's a Klingon Civil War. You can't go fighting it. He resigns from Starfleet. Ends up on Kern's ship. Picard is like, hey, I have to, like, even though I can't just go and help with my ships, I have to figure out a way to expose the fact that these Romulans and the Duras, they're still working together. The Romulans are trying to help Duras win because that'll mean the end of the alliance with the Klingons. Um, the, uh, through that, you also find out that there's a, the Romulan commander leading this operation is Commander Sela. Who, when Tasha Yar went back in yesterday's Enterprise, she didn't disappear. She went back in time, was captured by the Romulans, and forced to have a daughter, who then grew up to sell out her uh, her 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 mom, although she was four and trying to get Tasha was trying to escape, um, and has become a true like just a Romulan through and through that looks exactly like Tasha Yar with Romulan ears. Um, eventually, Picard is able to reveal that the Romulans were aiding the Duras. Family, uh, the Duras sisters escape, uh, and uh, Gowron is the head of the High Council, and Worf realizes that um, he really, unfortunately, does belong in Starfleet. He's he His idea of who the Klingons are and what it means to Kl- be a Klingon is different than what the Klingons do and say. And so he's kind of, he goes back, but he kind of now feels even that much more a man without a home. He's welcome on... He's he's an ally to Gowron. Gowron will show up a few more times uh, throughout this and Deep Space Nine, but ultimately he has to kind of contend with the fact that that idea of him becoming a Klingon and just at some point retiring to Quonos, not quite going to happen. He has to kind of chart a new path. And in season five, a little spoiler, that's kind of um, expanded on by Alexander, his son, coming back to live with him on the Enterprise and him dealing with being a father over the next few seasons. Um, so it's five episodes. It's a long stretch. Um, it does set up some things for not too much, but uh, tells you a lot about Worf and sets up a few things for Star Trek Generations. Uh, again, Peter, for most people watching, this is three years of plot <laughs> compressed into four or five episodes. Uh, what did you think of all this? I didn't think it was actually too overwhelming. Uh, at all. Um, ultimately, the the beats are uh, Klingons and Romulans are teaming up, despite the fact that they have a mixed past. Romulans dress really terribly and have just fucking awful fashion sense. They look like awesome ships, though. Uh, great ships, but does it matter if you're <laughs> if you look like a goddamn clown when you're driving the ship? Like. <laughs> They like those pointy. They have pointy ears. They might as well have pointy shoulders. Can you imagine uh, if Steve McQueen steps out from he, he gets out of his, his fucking muscle car, his black sleek muscle car and bullet, uh, and, he, and he, he he's just got <laughs> hey guys, he's just got a fucking perm and a, like a pink leisure suit leisure suit on, like. What, like the the coolness factor of the ships uh, only goes so far. Romulans are dorks. Uh, I'm adding them to my new space racist uh, list. Don't like Romulans. Not a fan. Uh, don't know anything. Haven't seen a Ferengi yet, but don't like them. Uh, uh, Romulans are also like one of the species that are like we're all gonna do same haircut. Doesn't matter, boy, girl, 
And there's they, these awful wigs that have bull, like a, bull guts. These weird, Vulcans do it too. Like, but they've it, got like a weird. Robins broke off from it. Vulcans. Like yeah. the Vulcans, at least like sometimes they keep it trim and tight. Like the Romulans have like this weird like side bumpets and top yeah. bumpets. Like, do you guys remember bumpets? Um, but the, there's a weird volume <laughs> to the Romulan yeah. hairstyle that just really irks me. There are some great Romulan episodes. Um, but their haircuts and their costumes don't get better, Peter. I don't know how to tell you. I'm mostly just ha- um, I'm mostly just excited to see Romulans die uh, in the course of these plots because um, they're you'll see a lot of them die. They're um, they're 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 duplicitous. Uh, they can't be trusted. Uh, they're not Vulcans, which I would prefer more of. Um, you know, we get Sarek in here. What's Sarek up to? Uh, we'll actually get into that. Um, I know there's an episode called Sarek. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get there. I, I I scrolled, um, but yeah, there's there's a the one thing that I really I really liked about the emissary plots was Kalar and her loss felt very strong to me, and I like this idea that's sort of tr- uh, trickling back from the old episodes of these far flung lovers across the galaxy um, connecting mm-hmm. each other in this sort of like a snowflake or spiderweb pattern of of sort of like an Eskimo fraternity. Um, and it sort of maintains this sort of like Western allure of this final frontier. Yeah. Uh, it's this vast open space, but it also makes it feel small enough to be relatable. Like you can eventually get to the, or you can't eventually get to the Oregon territories, right? Like you can eventually get to, to these far flung planets and you may run into a lover at a space station on the way there. Um, it is really great, and also uh, it, it it sort of um, I, I can see why it's appealing to some Trekkies because uh, the idea of having like a lover spread throughout the the, the universe <laughs> it's like Worf's Canadian girlfriend. No, I swear I have I have had sex. It was we we licked each other's hands, we sniffed each other. It was a whole thing. Like she just. She's an ambassador. She's going. She's, she's just she's really busy, you know. She's just really busy. Yeah. Um. And and, um, and, Tony's- and thankfully, even though, uh, even though, uh, Kalar obviously does not come back. Uh, the the great thing about Star Trek is that oh, you were Klingon. What if we don't have you play a Klingon and then you can come back? So the actor uh, who plays Kalar gets to come back as a Vulcan. She's great. And um, and oh, maybe that was actually the season two. But then she also plays, and this is a huge, like, wait, what's going on? Uh, she plays Q's wife in an episode of Voyager. Interesting. Oh. Uh, and, and, and so she, but she's playing, supposed to be, like, a recognizable character to Worf? No. no in Vo- in Star Trek Voyager? Yeah. No. Oh, oh, oh. No, Worf's not in Star Trek Now, now I understand. Sorry. Okay. Um, and I also love uh, Tony Todd as Kern. I'm a big oh, yeah. I'm a Todd head. He's in one more episode of Deep Space Nine as Kern. Yeah. Um, he's great. He's uh Tony Todd is this this wonderful character actor that can both play like this sort of uh charming uh sort of charming yet rough around the edges kind of uh you know, charmer, like this sort of like uh trash Shakespeare uh character. But also, he can just play like I'm a frothing animal, which he, which Kern very often is in this show. Um, and Tony, T- I did think it was weird. Tony though. Todd is Tony Todd's just very versatile. He's a great character actor, and he can play like all across the board. And it was fun to get to see him uh, both like be humbled in moments, and then in moments be like, "No, I am stepping on the gas, and I'm heading right for yeah. your face, Worf." 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I did think it was weird that after, so in the opening scene of part two of Redemption, they're close to death and Worf and Kern execute this maneuver that saves them from almost certain death. And they escape. And I did think it was weird when they were back at the bar later that Kern turned to Worf and was like, you've escaped death and now it's coming back for you unless you stop the cycle. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> good. Now, I'm recognizing I don't know if you've seen those movies, Peter, but you may know what I'm referring to. Escape death cycle. He he's the guy that tells them what's going on in fi- in the final. Oh, I haven't seen those. I thought you were referencing. I, I I all of a sudden, as I'm saying it, I'm like, I think I've just had a conversation that Peter has not seen those. Movies. I I thought you but were yeah. referencing them, but I haven't seen the movies. Uh, but I knew Tony Todd is in them because I love the, the Toddster, and he's a he's a like a funeral director who was like, "What's going on?" He's like, "You've escaped death." Yeah, <laughs> it's death doesn't like to be escaped yeah he's great he's at, great, he's those, great yeah. at playing that sort of mystical guy on the the peripheries he's also he's he's a similar role in hatchet but like in a satirical way where he's like you really think just because i'm like a black voodoo guy that i like have some sort of tap in to the to the inner <laughs> mysteries of the world like no this is just how i make my fucking money leave me alone yeah uh yeah so we didn't spend that much time on those. We're obviously we're not going through episode by episode. These are more to get a sense for Peter of stuff, and also just sh- like if we're gonna t- show Peter track, how can I not show him some uh, next generation episode? So yeah, that was nine episodes is a lot. I'm glad you still feel pumped about it. Um, what are you feeling going into the first? And even that, like, let me let me tell you a little bit, Peter. I have been like, there's a plot point in Generations that is, like, important and means so much more if you know why it's why it's important. So I'm going to let you yeah, decide. Se- second, sometimes you're watching a movie in second act fuckery. Uh, second act fuckery doesn't actually uh, uh, connect until you've seen the end of the movie. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's – so here's the thing. So we could go – I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to give you a choose your own adventure. We can go and do the two uh, episodes that also set up some stuff in Generations and do, which is Data Lore and Brothers, and then do Star Trek Generations next time. Or because it kind of does set up an important part of Star Trek Generations, we could go and do the Star Trek episodes that set up first contact uh give a little more like because obviously it happens before generations and then we'll do generations and first contact back to back now it's only four episodes uh total i i'm only i'm only gonna watch nine episodes so you're gonna need to find find five more (laughs) i mean i can't they might not relate to to uh star trek first contact yeah like the the episode where uh commander kirk gets uh a bike I mean, we really could, just to be clear, I could add three more episodes and we could do every Next Generation Borg episode before the Borg movie. Uh, I think what we should... And we do seven episodes next week. Uh, so I think like, we should we go could. the slower route, which it sounds like uh, building in a little more buffer room, watching TOS episodes, and then going into the, the first movie. Is that what you said? No, not TOS. I, there's four next-gen episodes that set up First Contact, but there is a plot point in one of those that's very important for an emotional thing that happens in Star Trek Generations that may not mean as much to you if you haven't seen that. So my my proposal is we can go either way. We can either go to Star Trek Generations 
then do the one-off Star Trek Next Generation episodes before First Contact, or we do the setting up First Contact Next Generation episodes next, then do Generations, then First Contact. Um, the latter. Because I, okay. I don't know what's because I don't know which way to go. I think that's the to way to go. Like I was excited to get into a movie, and I'm, also like I, I would, I would, I, I we can slow things down a little bit. We've got I. I well, I either way, we're doing these. Show. It's it's kind of what order we were already going to do it. We were going to go movie some a block of episodes movie, but let's do another little block of episodes. Won't be nine. It'll only be four. Okay, well, uh, I and watch. then we'll go to the. So you're gonna watch Q Hugh. Q Who, sorry, Q Who, uh, The Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and Part 2, and an episode called Family. Is Vin Diesel in the episode called Family? <laughs> no, and uh, I want you to watch it because it's so bad without without the D's. <laughs> Did anyone ever call him D's Nuts, you think? Because they should have. Uh, I don't think it's his actual that name. That Nuts. So maybe not. <laughs> it's like a nickname, and then he's also a little... Yeah. So very excited for these for you, Peter. D's uh, these Nuts. Are, these are the uh, the big... Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and Part 2, is the cliffhanger that I talked about kind of uh, bec- making Star Trek Next Generation into its phenomenon. The one that's usually... Part 1 is usually included on... Uh, Top twenty-five episodes of all time. I'm not trying to set the stage too high for you, but uh, it's a it's a great episode of television. Um, Q Who is going to set that one up a little bit, uh, and then Family is going to kind of deal with after that, which is very all very important for First Contact. Also, going to set up a little little tiny moment in Generations to maybe have a little bit of resonance for you that wouldn't otherwise. So, yeah, I'm I am so excited to get to those four episodes you have no fucking idea um and it's good because i do think those episodes need a little bit more time to digest than than most of these did so i think spending the entirety talking about those four episodes uh feels feels right and then we'll move on to some generations and first contact cool afterwards so uh, next until next time peter I don't know, something Star Trek y probably. Yeah, until next time, catch you on the ship side. (laughs) My favorite Picard thing is like, all right, number one, catch you on the flippy floppy. (laughs) (laughs) Out of character, but it was the eighties, man. They tried to try to keep it hip for the young kids. Yeah, they tried to keep it fresh. When remember when Kirk was like I just like really like think that you're like a really good crew like yeah <laughs> i wish they had an episode of so there's an episode that we didn't talk about about the original series where they go to a, a hippie planet and they all like listen to groovy 60s music on the hippie planet and i kind of wish they had a like next generation everyone listens to classical music which makes sense like hey this survived 400 years we don't we don't have to date ourselves it'll probably be something people still listen to in 300 years um but i would love the next generation episode where they're like oh you're into the rhythm nation too (laughs) (laughs) yeah can we actually have a uh programming block two programming blocks throughout the tng uh movies uh one is your favorite sort of one-off episodes Oh yeah, we could no, do that's... like we could do like a you know a thirty minute block on each of your 
four to six favorite episodes. I don't know. Uh, and then uh, an episode block that's just what you think are the most embarrassing Star Trek episodes. Oh, <laughs> we can we can definitely do that. I want um, I want the we're best, I want the best I want the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds, and also the episodes the best of both worlds part one and two, but three different episodes. That wasn't confusing yeah. at all, was it? No, I totally got it. Um, well, we're definitely going to do a favorite one. We're going to do that after Star Trek um, 2009. And then I'm going to do a proper wrap-up episode of Next Generation where I think two that are like truly serve like the emotional ending of the show, including the finale, before we get into, into Darkness. But if you want me to throw in like, oh my god, these are the worst fucking episodes. <laughs> like, oh, we could do that. Do you want to go to a planet? Now, it's going to be a lot of season one of Next Generation, but... Do you want to go to a planet, Peter, where – check this out. You've heard of the patriarchy, right? What if it's a planet ruled by, get this, women? That's – okay. <laughs> well, this show went a little far for me. Um, speaking as a white man, uh, the show uh, maybe crossed a border into some SJW territory with that one. I know. Uh, it's uh, well. Don't worry. No one on the on the Enterprise is too psyched about it. <laughs> no one's like, "This is fine." They're like, "Women in charge only." We think of each other as equals, and of course, the women. Uh, guess what they're like? They're trying to get Riker and Picard for breeding stock. Uh, not a great episode of Next Gen, and there's more like that. There's ones that tried really hard, like the Outcasts. That's like. What if uh, that they think I think it's supposed to be about like being gay, but it's actually about like, uh, why won't you let this this androgynous person just admit she's a woman? <laughs> uh, anyway, so we can yeah, do we can need, do a, most a, a best of episode and I need worst of episode and they need to be separate so that I can get into troll mode for the latter. Oh, yeah, there's enough. There's a lot to laugh about. We'll get there. But anyways, until next time. May the force be with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get out of yar. Yar. And Tosh, your shit with you. I don't know, dude. All right. Well, you don't have to force it. Just end. Just end the episode. Uh, force is a Star Wars thing. So I mean, really, who shows so, so, their ass so is here? So may the force be with you, Peter. <sighs> Uh, I will not make that's it let's cancel this and we're gonna do um start Babylon (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's let's uh get out of here and shadich this uh business yep we've been um Aaron and Peter Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Moran if you're nasty (laughs) give me a beat
I don't 